Welcome to Just Curious Media. This is Let's Talk Cobra Kai. I'm Jason Connell. And I'm Sal Rodriguez. All right, Sal. Here we are. The Karate Kid Part 2 Special Edition. Oh, I never thought we'd make it this far. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, considering what's going on, I mean, we're not even in the same location. This is a first. This is a first. This is the first time that you and I have not been side by side at the studio because we are practicing social distancing and we're trying this virtually and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. And now I know why we're so into the 80s because the 2020s suck. <laughs> Especially March. <laughs> March had like 90 days in it, it felt like. Ugh. But hey, nothing like Karate Kid to lift your spirits, I should say. Yeah. Big time excited to be here. It's been too long. Let's rock and roll. All right. So what I've read... Sal, is that there was debate over to make the sequel about the revenge of Cobra Kai or Mr. Miyagi's story and travel back to his home country. Obviously, the latter won out, and I think it was a wise decision. We're not rushing back into Cobra Kai territory, although I would have loved that. I think it was a really nice way to take this to the next level and get to know Mr. Miyagi's backstory. And I think you probably agree. Yeah, I definitely agree because I don't think that, you know, Crease, God love him, God love him. He's not the primary stars. The primary stars are Daniel san and Mr. Miyagi. So I wanted to go along with them a little more before I go back around to the hijinks of Crease and Terry Silver, which you see in Karate Kid 3. Exactly. And so reading more about some of the trivia behind the scenes things. It looks like they went into production of the sequel like 10 days after the release of the original, which is kind of crazy. And risky because the franchise hasn't had time to prove itself. So that's definitely a gamble. Yeah, I guess they had early numbers or they just knew 10 days in uh, that this thing, you know, they had a hit on their hands, but there was something there. And obviously, I don't think the cast was overly expensive. You know, it wasn't like they had all these big names. So they were able to lock everyone up except for the Cobra Kai students. They didn't have them. They had to bring in some new people. But we did lose one character as well, which we'll get into later. But Elizabeth Shue was not part of the sequel, which uh, I know saddens me a great deal. Well, that was apparently her choice. Well, her choice, right? Wasn't she going to school to Harvard at the time? So it was her choice to a degree. What I had read was that they were going to They were going to have some scenes with her in the beginning of the film. And then it was just too complicated. And she had agreed to this, but it was just something they couldn't get worked out. So they scrapped it. So she was going to be a small part and they just kind of weren't able to do that. So that said, Sal, Karate Kid was the only appearance in all of this, in Cobra Kai and all the sequels of the Karate Kid that Elizabeth Shue was in. Well, there's speculation about Her appearance in season three, we'll see. I don't think anybody knows. I I know you haven't told me any spoilers regarding season three of Cobra Kai. I haven't heard anything or read anything. You know, back toward the end of season two or when you and I were were recording season two of Let's Talk Cobra Kai, there was speculation about Elizabeth Shue returning in season three of Cobra Kai, but I have seen no confirmations and no evidence of of that being the case. Well, and I know nothing either. I was just about to say it's just about time. 
for her to come back. Albeit season three or another season, or if there's a Karate Kid, Cobra Kai movie reboot, you know, taking where the show has now taken things and coming out and making a feature length movie. Hey, I don't know, but I am hopeful. I'll just put it that way. Well, if you look at the way this movie starts, which we'll get into in a second, if you look at the way it starts, I would have no care to see Elizabeth Shue's character again. I would have no care to see Allie again after she dumped our primary yeah. main actor. So we're going to get into that again. But I would have no care to. It was only because of what has occurred on Cobra Kai season two where I would have any care to see Allie return. Yeah, they kind of threw her under the bus, but we'll, we'll get into that. Can I just mention a couple of things here? Just a couple of things I think yeah. are, are interesting. Just to bring us up to speed, Noriyuki Pat Morita is 54 at the filming yeah. of this movie. Ralph Macchio, 25 at the filming. If you look at Karate Kid 2 on IMDb, there are 80 photographs associated with it. Number 74, so again, you got to go in there, shows George Bush. That's not George W., the son, but the original. Senior. George Bush. Yeah, senior. George Bush, Barbara Bush, along with Pat Morita and Ralph Macchio on the set a presidential visit to the set. I did not know about this. Wow. That's pretty impressive. I have not seen that. I couldn't make it past 40. So you, <laughs> uh, you trudged on to 74. That's really cool. I'll have to look at that photo. Maybe we'll have to post it on our social media. Check that out. And also, this movie is set in Okinawa, but it's actually filmed in Oahu, Hawaii. That's right. So how did you feel about that? Because I know that you have traveled to Okinawa. I have traveled to Okinawa. I'll get into that a little more specifically as we go along. But the reason that they chose Hawaii is because, A, it's the United States, so it makes things a little bit easier with filming. But, B, it has a similar climate. See, that a lot of, what a lot of people don't know, and I learned this, I, I believe me, I learned this when I went to Japan. When you go to the mainland of Japan, Tokyo, etc., and then you work your way down to Okinawa, it's different. It's a different feel. It's a different vibe. It's more of a Polynesian feel. It's more of a Hawaii type feel. People are even a little bit darker. It's a different vibe in Okinawa than it is in Japan. I loved it just as much, but definitely more of an island vibe on Okinawa than in mainland Japan. Okay. Well, there you have it. So besides Hawaii, the rest of the movie was filmed at the Warner Brothers Burbank Studios lot, if you will. That as I didn't well, know. Yeah, it's true. Well, this is according to IMDb. And there were even some scenes filmed at Mr. Miyagi's house over in Canoga Park, which has wow. since, unfortunately, as you already know, has been demolished. Sad to say. But uh, my opinion, that place should have been a shrine or a museum for Karate Kid lovers for years to come. But <laughs> yeah. they have recreated it very nicely, it looks like, in Georgia, where they shoot Cobra Kai. But wait, did they tear that house down before Cobra Kai? Oh, yes. Yes, it's been demolished okay. for many years. Okay, so if it has stuck around long enough to at least meet the advent of Cobra Kai, and then they may maybe they... Yeah. yeah you know. Maybe, yeah. So to stay on point and true to form, I will give the ratings. So on IMDb, this movie gets a 6.0, and on Rotten Tomatoes, it gets a 42%. Now, That's just not very high, right? Not crazy high, but just to give you some context... This is how the original does on those platforms. The Karate Kid, 7.2 on IMDb, and 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. So the original is more loved, and rightfully so. I think it's a superior film, and 
if it wasn't for that film, you wouldn't even have this sequel or all the subsequent ones or even Cobra Kai the show. So it's hard to compare with the original, but this was the second installment and that's what we're focused on. Are you saying that you love Karate Kid original motion picture over Karate Kid 2 just because of the heritage now with the original or because you actually independently think it's a better film? Oh, it's a much better film. The story is more complete. Listen, we'll get into Karate Kid 2 and we're about to and we kind of already are. But yeah, I have a lot less eye rolls in the Karate Kid. (laughs) Okay. Not to put the sequel down, but at the box office... This movie made, at least the U.S. gross, and I don't know when this was cut off, but it made $115 million. So it made more than the original, but that was coming, you know, it only came out, what, a couple years after the original. All the hype was still there. And so it didn't make more because it's a better film. It made more because there was demand and the timing, and the industry was very different back then. It was in the wake of the original, so the timing was good. Yeah, had they waited a decade or, you know, how sometimes sequels take a long time to come out. But yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It was in the wake of, and so I don't attribute that to quality. But anyway, so they yeah, bought back. On, it, it, it sounds like you're bashing the movie before we even start it. I think quality-wise, yeah, this is absolutely an inferior picture, but it's still a pretty good movie. I think at one point in time, you had even said, could this have been a movie, at least the plot, the story, if it wasn't related to the Karate Kid? And I thought that was an interesting question. Outside of the Karate Kid universe, I believe this movie could stand alone. If you took away their names, just made it a different universe, I think it would have been absolutely just as great. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it would have found an audience. It would have done well. Because... There was a lot of martial arts movies coming out in the 80s, and that's an interesting story. Disciple follows his master back to the homeland, and there's a story. Absolutely, it could have. Well, he, totally he, doesn't, he doesn't just, again, we're going to get into this as soon as we get into the movie, but he doesn't just follow him. He yeah. literally is a very supportive friend at that exactly. moment. If you, yeah. yeah, so we'll get into that. We'll get into that. So who else came back for the sequel? Well, you had Jerry Weintraub still producing, probably the person that said, hey, let's get into production on the sequel immediately. We got ourselves a winner here. You had John Avildsen, the very talented director who did Karate Kid 1, 2, 3. He also did the original Rocky, which won Best Picture. And he came back wow. and did Rocky 5. You had Robert Mark Kamen, the writer who created all the characters. He grew up in martial arts. He really doesn't get enough praise, I would say. You had Bill Conti come back as the composer. And of course, you had Pat Morita and Ralph Macchio. So they had, you know, the core team coming back. And what you see a lot of times in sequels is you're missing some of that. You don't have the same director. You don't have the same star or or whatever. But that's what I think helped this movie capture some magic. I like when the crew can come back. It's, it's almost like a band. Yeah. Like, hey, let's get the band back together, you know? And then exactly. you, you create a new old sound that the listener is familiar with or the viewer is familiar with. And it's got a real nice flow to it. For the fan, it flows easier than if it's just a whole new group. I totally agree. It is like getting the band back together. And here we go. So this movie starts with this opening montage It's a fly-catching scene, a crane technique, the Medal of Honor, Halloween night, Cobra Kai Dojo, all leading up to the All-Valley Karate Championship. 
I like that it brings it, it brings the new viewer up to speed. I, I, I like that. It is. It's like it's kind of like watching a season finale of a show, and then they give you all what you've taken in the first five seasons. But I don't ever remember this in a movie. And I watch a lot of movies from the 70s and 80s, but had you seen this done before? This kind of five-minute montage to get things started? I didn't realize it at the time, but I don't think I have seen that, where, yeah, the sequel does this rehash in the beginning. No, I don't think I've seen that in any other sequel, no. Especially for a movie, as you said earlier, that was in the wake of the original. So I wouldn't say that people were forgetting it. You know, it, it, it didn't disappear for a decade. Yeah, not, not a lot of time had elapsed. You could imagine the people were sitting in the theater like the first five minutes like, yeah, we know. We know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We've been there. We've been there. When I saw Godfather 2, I don't remember a quick like, well, here's what happened in the first one. Michael became, it didn't do that. However, as I say this aloud, you know what popped in my mind? I think Rocky 2 starts with the fight sequence from Rocky 1. I now, think you right. And again, there we go, yeah. Avildsen, yes. Well, he didn't, he didn't direct 2. That was Stallone. But still, we're in Avildsen's, you know... He crafted the first one, the, the masterpiece. So I think those movies did it, but it was all about the fight that ended the movie prior. This gave us a whole montage. But anyway, hey, it was cool. It was nice to see. You and I are up on our stuff because of the Let's Talk Cobra Kai show. But if you were someone revisiting The Karate Kid 2, like on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon, some random viewer, the montage would be very nice for them, even today. So there it was. And as soon as we get caught up in real time, the first scene that is brand new to the audience is a shower scene, which just cracks me up. It's an interesting choice. Yeah, because I've been in those tournaments and I never showered afterwards. We just went home with our gi and hopefully with some hardware. And I like how Mr. Miyagi's in there with Daniel, which is, uh, which is pretty funny. Well, wait, to be clear, hang on. Hang on. He's not in there. He's waiting outside the showers while Daniel's taking Well, he's the in the locker he's room. He's in the, he's locker, in the locker room. room. Yeah, he's in the locker room with his back to the wall of the showers, chatting with Daniel as Daniel is in the shower with all these other guys. Who are those other guys? Were those other competitors? I guess so. Yeah. Was, yeah. was it entirely possible that Johnny Lawrence was in that shower along with Daniel LaRusso? Yeah, and Crease who also was in a gi. <laughs> so he had to shower. Greece was in the shower with them. <laughs> they probably kept the Cobra Kai off to the side. Although Johnny had just given Daniel the trophy. So maybe there's less bad blood now. But the only thing that could have made this more funny or strange is if Miyagi was in the stall next to him. <laughs> <laughs> and they're soaping up. Nothing, you know, nothing below board, of course, but they're soaping up and just talking. And that would have been like, what? We already jumped the shark and we're like one scene in the movie. So we come out of the shower scene. And as you and I know, we do not see Ali or Daniel's mother this entire film. So Miyagi immediately gets it out of the way and says, Ali and mother wait for us at restaurant. Okay. And Daniel's that like, okay, yeah, sure. And that's it. That's it. Boom. Like they're not, we're not going to see them right then because we don't go to the restaurant and we never see them. But I thought that was kind of funny. I completely forgot about that line, but yeah. So Daniel is carrying his championship trophy, limping along next to Miyagi, walking out of the auditorium. They stop and chat. Crease exits the building, 
starts manhandling people, <laughs> at, uh, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. He starts manhandling people, in particularly actor Eddie Smith, who recites the line, hey, man, what you doing to a brother? Which I love. That so line really should showed, have caught on. I love that. That should have been on T-shirts. So Kreese walks between Miyagi, Daniel, the tournament announcer, played by Bruce Malmuth. Remember that name, Bruce Malmuth. We're going to be revisiting that again. Well, real quick on Bruce, the announcer. I like to call him Tex. I love what he says. He says, people are going to be talking about that last kick for years to come. And Sal. Talk about a foreshadow, yeah. He nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to build a series around that kick. <laughs> Amazing. He didn't know that he was predicting Cobra Kai. And then he breaks through the announcer and referee, Pat E. Johnson, who is also the fight choreographer for the movies. Right. He shoves them aside. And I wonder, at that moment, I actually paused and wondered, at that moment, when he pushes aside Bruce and Pat, the announcer and referee, is that when he gets his lifetime ban? Is that the very moment right there? I believe. No, I think it happened about two and a half minutes later. Okay, we're, all right. We're all almost right. there. We're almost there. We'll, we'll get to that. Okay, how about, how about at this moment when Chris keeps walking on and Daniel says, why does he act like that? And then we hear a voice off camera says, that guy just doesn't know what karate is all about. Was that Johnson or was that Malmuth? Was that oh, the announcer know. or was that the referee? I don't know because you don't see. I'm curious yeah. what. So Chris heads over to the students and then right at that moment, kids run right up asking Daniel for an autograph. And these kids are from Reseda, too, so these are local kids. Daniel signs the autographs for them. One kid is backwards to the camera the whole time. I felt bad for them. I would have redirected them if I were Avildsen. Yeah. I would have said, let's see a little face there. Now, one thing I want to mention, a little trivia here. It, it could be suspect. These kids are Garth Johnson and Brett Johnson. Are these sons of Pat E. Johnson? It's the same scene, practically. Why not? I'm wondering if these are relation. Again, when we Good remember, remember Bruce Malmuth, so there's a lot of in the family going on here. So I wonder if yeah. those were kids of choreographer and referee Pat E. Johnson. Yeah, could be. Good spot there. We'll find out. So what this is leading to, and we've talked about this on the Karate Kid special episode, as well as I'm sure episodes of Let's Talk Cobra Kai as we reflect on the show. But what is coming was supposed to be the end of the Karate Kid. And this scene is where Kreese is having a confrontation with his students because he's so mad about losing and he basically attacks Johnny. So this scene was going to end the movie and Sal, thank goodness they did not do that and they saved it. And they said, hey, if we ever do a sequel, we'll start it with this as opposed to in the other movie. Because the first movie ends so beautifully with the, you know, he gets the trophy and there's the shot of Miyagi and then we're out. I couldn't imagine having one more beat, you know, if you're like a fourth act or something. So kudos I like to everybody. When a, no, I like when a movie ends on a happy note. I really do. I yeah. like to walk out of the theater a little, a little happier. I don't like walking out of a theater all bummed out. Yeah. Even if the movie was good, you know? So, yeah, I like the choice that they made. I like that they didn't end the original movie with Kreese, you're nothing, you're lost, you're a loser. I'm so happy that they didn't do that. And to be clear, they didn't shoot it. They just had written it and practiced, rehearsed it, I should say, but they didn't shoot it. So it wasn't that close to happening. So enough about the setup. Let's talk about the scene. 
Okay, so can I can I got to mention one thing I found so interesting? Yeah, please. you and I both enjoy looking at all the actors in a scene, including the extras. And one thing I I found it very funny was Crease is up against the car with Johnny. There's an extra on the other side of the car, on the driver's side, who has yeah. his back to the camera the whole time. There's a fight going on behind you, and you don't well, even was, turn around once? That was Dutch. No, no, it was on the other side of the car. It was, I think it was wearing a hat. Well, there was two guys on the other side of the car, and one was the guy from Head of the Class. He was what? one of the Cobra Kai's. We've talked about this. He was in the Wait, original. Dutch? No, and Dutch is next to him. So I went back and as we prepared for this episode, I also was noticing those extras. Having made a movie, a documentary about extras called Strictly Background, I always look at the background players and think, what's that guy doing? And when I went back and, and viewed it again, it appeared to be Dutch because Dutch is in the sequel and that was him. Wow. Okay, so why didn't you have them turn around at the ruckus that was taking place? I just found that interesting. He was too cool for school. He is Steve McQueen's son. So, you know, Dutch has got, he does his own thing. So what's going on in the scene, Sal? As I already said, he comes over and starts to kind of go off on the students. But maybe just talk us through what's exactly happening. Crease berates Johnny for a second place loss, calls him a loser. Johnny reacts, goes, no, you're a loser, man. Crease grabs the trophy, breaks it, tosses it aside, and gets Johnny Lawrence in a chokehold. Yeah. Other guys come in. He elbows one guy. I don't know which guy was that who got elbowed on the left. And another guy shows up. I forgot which guys they were. Another guy shows up. Crease like, don't. I remember that line. Don't. I think it was like Tommy and Bobby. Those guys were close by. But anyway, yeah, it's not looking good. Miyagi approaches. Let him go. Yeah. And then Crease backhands another student. And then this thing I found interesting because I'd never really noticed this before. I really listened intently. So Chris says, beat it, slope, or you're next. Now, I never knew about this word slope, which I, I said, what? what? Okay, so I looked it up. Slope, a derogatory term or slur used for the purpose of describing a Vietnamese or Asian person describing the slope of their eyes. Oh my gosh. I never knew it. So it's it's you know, it's one of these moments where like it's one thing to be an asshole, but now you're a racist asshole. He's the worst. So this leads to a showdown between Crease and Miyagi. And this is one of the knocks I have in this film, although I do like the film, but I would have liked to see a you know, like a really good fight. These are guys are both very skilled. They have different styles. They could tussle for a minute or two, but that's not what happens. If you're talking about a, the fight sequences that we all know and love, this would probably be, if you visit all the fight sequences that we all know and love throughout cinematic history, this is probably not one of them. It was no. disappointing. Crease did not show any skills. I mean, I could have done as well against Miyagi as Crease did. So... For anyone who's unaware of what really goes down. So let's pick it up where we left off. So Kreese still has Johnny in a chokehold and Miyagi comes towards him. Then he hits one student. And so Sal, then what happens? Miyagi steps in and uses a maneuver to get Kreese to release Johnny. So he forces the release of Johnny by Kreese through uh, manipulation for sure. And super upset and full of rage. He already lost in the tournament. He's already mad and throwing all of his students under the bus. And here's the protagonist that's caused this, him and Daniel, Mr. Miyagi. And so he charges him out of rage 
And what happens? Well, you see the difference. You talk about the difference in styles, but just in this moment, the difference in emotions. So Kreese is full of rage and anger, yeah. lost control. Mm-hmm. Miyagi is so calm, so very calm. Kreese goes in to punch him. Miyagi moves right out of the way, turns around, goes in to punch him. He moves out of the way again effortlessly, and thus Kreese has two bloodied fists from hitting two car windows. And he's kind of in shock that he's done it. He looks at his bloody knuckles and he's in shock at what's occurred. You would call this one of Kreese's low light moments. Yeah, maybe he's got a real problem with blood because well, he I mean, became kind of a wimp. He was in Vietnam, right? I know, I know. I'm so telling he you. Says, <laughs> so he says. Okay, so that picture could have been doctored, the one in the dojo of him. I mean, it looked more like a theatrical headshot, but... Can you trust anything out of his mouth, knowing what you know now about Kreese? I mean, seriously, come on. You know what? Now that you mention it, it's starting to become clear. It's entirely possible that Kreese was never in the military at all, and that picture was fake hanging up in the studio. Yeah, I don't, I wow. don't believe him. He's done anything. Wow. Except for he's run Cobra Kai, and he's made some real tough bullies. But anyway, so Kreese is distraught. He can't believe his buddy Knuckles. And this leads to the end of this, if you want to call it a fight sequence. And so go ahead, tell us what happens. So I know you and I talked about this once before, where you thought maybe Kreese fainted, but it was just sort of, I think, an emotional and physical collapse where he just kind of caves into himself. Yeah. And he just falls into this heap. Before he falls into the heap, Miyagi's about to give him the death blow. You think this is going to be it for Kreese. Kreese is on his knees on the ground, right. about to be finished by Miyagi. Miyagi has his hand raised in a karate chop position, ready to give the death blow. Miyagi's in that pose when he knocked the bottles off of his truck. Oh, yes. Knocked the caps off. That was one of the only issues I had with the original Karate Kid. I, I think they were held down to believe that they could have been, he could have knocked the tops off of loose bottles on a truck. Eh, far-fetched. But he had that same strike. So he was going to do that to really could have killed Crease if he wanted to. He could have. That's why I say he could have delivered the death blow. But he didn't. Instead of delivering the death blow, or at least a blow to give the final humiliation to Crease in his moment of existing humiliation. Hey, might as well go a step further. Instead, Miyagi comes in close, grabs his nose, and goes, honk. I mean, it is humiliating, but it's not beaten to a pulp humiliating. That's when he falls into himself, Christo. That's when he kind of just caves and crumbles into himself and falls into a heap on the ground. Miyagi and Daniel walk away, and at this moment is where Daniel says, and I believe this little interaction here I think sums up I think the entire movie, I mean, this is the summarization, I feel, is where Daniel says, you could have killed him, couldn't you? And Miyagi says, aye. Well, then why didn't you then? And Miyagi says, because, daniel son, for person with no forgiveness in heart, living even worse punishment than death. Wow. And there you go. And that it's leads us subtitle. into the rest. By the way, I always want to mention, the car that they are getting into is the truck is a 1941 Chevrolet light delivery. Beautiful truck. Beautiful truck. So that is the end of Cobra Kai, Crease, Johnny, the whole bunch for this entire film. There's no more mention of them. You don't see them anymore. We don't know what's going on with them. We're off on a different adventure. 
And so now the text comes on screen six months later. And we come in on Miyagi, who is, of all things, trying to catch the fly with a chopstick. And this time, Sal, unlike the previous film, he does it. Yeah. And I really like that he doesn't make a fuss over it. He doesn't pat himself on the back. He's not so excited about doing it. He does it. He gives a little grin, and then he moves on. In Karate Kid folklore, what does that say about someone when they're able to catch a fly in chopsticks? Man who catch fly with chopstick accomplish anything. So he's got that going for him. Well, that's also a foreshadow then too, yeah. Of course. And, you know, Daniel's had that going for him for a while. So it's not a beat later that Daniel arrives and this whole film goes on a different course. And so he shows up, it's post-prom, the car's been crashed. Sal, go ahead and tell us what type of car that is again. (laughs) Daniel arrives in the 1948 Ford Super Deluxe, which again, for the new listener, is the same car used in Greece, that is Greased Lightning. So it's crashed, which really brings a tear to all of our eyes. And he comes in and he's blaming Allie, who wrecked it. I mean, he got the bumper hanging off, the steam coming out of it. He's even going on to say that Allie's now falling in love with some football player from UCLA. And Miyagi's kind of listening and he goes out there to start to repair the car immediately because that's what Miyagi does. And then Daniel's just on this rant. And he goes on about... Oh, my mom's taking another job, and this time it's in Fresno. We leave tomorrow. And it's just a lot going on. I mean, they came out of like zero to 60 with all this exposition, which is uh, pretty funny, but it does get the movie moving, I guess, Sal. I guess that's the point. One thing I noticed interesting is when Daniel arrives, there's music playing, and then he shuts off the car, the music stops, which lets the viewer know that the music is actually coming from the car and not part of the soundtrack necessarily. So that car, 1948 Ford, had a stereo in it? Or I wonder if that stereo was added later. I just found that interesting. Yeah, I think Miyagi probably dropped that in there for him. He's a kid. Probably had a cassette player, you think? Yeah, probably cassette player. And I also like Daniel's blue tux, which was very (laughs) reminiscent of Dumb and Dumber, which is pretty funny. So Miyagi's just, you know, helping out, kind of listening. But he's got... One way to help Daniel kind of clear his head, he's got some more work for him to do on the old Miyagi estate. And what's he have him do, Sal? Well, he takes him out back and he has him start hitting nails. So this is one of those moments where I'm thinking, okay, how does hitting nails to this attachment to the house to build a new room, how does this translate to a karate move? I mean, this is not wax on, wax off. This is not sand the floor. This is not, you know, paint up paint down. How is this going to translate to a karate move? That's what I want to see. So Daniel starts hammering these nails, finally gets a little frustrated, says he's all out of focus. Mr. Miyagi shows him a breathing technique to help bring his life and feelings back into focus. So then Daniel goes back to hitting the nails and he starts to get the hang of it, starts to feel pretty good. And And then Miyagi walks up. Well, go on. I want to kind of interject there, but... Okay, well, it's actually two. It's, it's, It's like... Do-do, boom. It was actually like three hits to get it in. The first two were like setup hits. Then the third was to get it all the way in. Yes, to hit it with one strike. I I agree. You you go tap, tap to it holds on its own. And then it's to focus. 
and hit it on the head and drive one through. So I think it's about focus. I think it's about hitting your spot. And it also kind of reminded me of Bruce Lee's one inch punch. It's like a lot of power and, and you're barely moving. You're moving like an inch with a hammer in your hand. So your hand is, you know, like a fist, if you will. But it, that's what it kind of reminded me of. But it was a cool technique. But that's as far as we get with it. It's not like Miyagi sets Daniel up and then disappears for the day and goes fishing. We don't kind of go back and tread on that water like we did in the original. And the next scene, we see Daniel has made a beautiful rosewood metal display for Mr. Miyagi's Medal of Honor. Yeah, he makes a nice uh, gift for him displaying the Medal of Honor because Daniel's proud of it for Mr. Miyagi, wants him to display it. And Mr. Miyagi, though, that's not really his style. He says, well, why should I show it off? For what? It doesn't really occur to Mr. Miyagi to show off his Medal of Honor. Which is very Miyagi-esque. He doesn't care about trophies, medals, or even belts, as we recall when Daniel asked him what belt he was in karate. And he said, what did he say? J.C. Penney's? Is that what he said? Was that from the first one? I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, it's the original. But if Miyagi didn't care at all about this medal, in my opinion, it would have been at the Goodwill a long time ago. So he has some sort of attachment to it, but he doesn't want to be boastful. He didn't care about put it on the wall, but he's touched. You know, it's a nice thing that Daniel did for him. And so Miyagi, out of nowhere, gets Daniel out of having to move to Fresno. Yeah. What we learn is that this attachment to the house, this new room that Daniel was hitting nails into, is a new guest room. And Miyagi says it's for a refugee. And Daniel says, a refugee? From where? Miyagi says, Fresno, which I thought was really cute. That was a clever way of saying that you can stay here. Now, here comes the mail carrier who doesn't know Miyagi's name after 40 years. No. (laughs) Well, we don't know how new this guy was, but he says, Mr. Miyagi. And then Daniel, I love how Daniel like jumps to his defense and corrects him. It's Miyagi. And the postman played by Will Hunt. I do think this scene is funny. I wanted to mention that because oh, it's great. the postman starts going on about how he goes, oh, this is some place you have here. Can I bring my wife by to have a look at it? Like, I just thought, what was the point of this interaction? But I guess it gives time for Miyagi to sign the letter, to start reading the letter as the postman is going on about how nice the place is. The postman says, maybe some other time. And then he walks off. And then Miyagi starts reading the letter, which is a special delivery from Okinawa. Right. So that's why the postman had to come in the back to find him in the first place, which wouldn't have happened in today's world. They would have left a note saying that you've got to come to the post office to get this special package or we'll try a redelivery. So the postman comes back to have him sign for it because it is coming from Okinawa and it was a special delivery. And what cracks me up is that the postman is blown away by what he sees back here. And much to my earlier point, this place could be a museum. It's a spectacle, what Miyagi's built. But what I love is nobody responds to the postman. Miyagi's (laughs) caught up looking at the letter. And Daniel, you think Daniel would step up and say, much like he did a second ago, but maybe say, hey, yeah, no, thanks so much. Another time. But no one says anything. And the postman's on his own to retreat and say, yeah, I guess I'll see you guys later, which is pretty funny. So the letter, Sal, is informing Mr. Miyagi that his father is sick and he wants to see him, essentially. Yeah. And Daniel yeah. didn't even know that he had a father. No. We, we for sure didn't know, and definitely Daniel didn't know. So this is all a big shock 
to both Daniel and the viewer. Yeah, exactly. So that sets things in motion. And this next scene kind of cracks me up because I was watching it going, wow, is that how it was in the 80s? But Miyagi goes to get a passport. And he's flying the very next day to fly international to go back to Okinawa. And he's in line with Daniel and he's getting a passport. So I guess, Sal, you could do that on very, very short notice back then. Well, let me tell you this, just as a point of reference, and this is absolutely true. There was at one point, I think I was a teenager, where I had to get an ID for some reason. I think I wanted to start working, so I needed an ID and I didn't have one. There was some issue with my birth certificate. My mother did not have my birth certificate for some reason. My mother then took my baptism certificate. I mean, how official is a church baptism certificate? My mother took my church's baptism certificate and got me a state ID from that. That was the 80s, my friend. Okay. All right. I think I flew with a Blockbuster card once. That's how how lax it was. No, I'm just kidding. So here we are, this interesting scene with Miyagi and Daniel having a chat about, you know, we're learning not just about his father, but about his lost love and his friend that they kind of were on the outs and how Miyagi has left and never gone back. But all this while, they're in this line to get a passport. And Daniel is not, it's kind of funny because he's not next to him. He's kind of behind him as if he's in line himself. Yeah, I thought that was sort of a, a funny uh, positioning of why they chose that. Yeah, he was, you know, if you say to your friend, hey, let's go go with me to the DMV or whatever, yeah. they're going to stand next to you in line, right? They're not going to be, or maybe even sitting off on a bench. They're not going to be behind you. So I did think that was a, a funny positioning. So, yeah, Daniel is behind Miyagi in this passport office, so obviously a state office or a federal office. But this is the moment where we learn all about what went on or what went down in Okinawa, why and how Miyagi wound up in Reseda. Well, first to your point about DMV and a friend going with you, that's a good friend who's going to go to the (laughs) DMV with you. There's that. And secondly, I guess when I thought about this scene more, they just wanted to get us out of the house because Miyagi could have read that letter and cut to suitcase, you know, and he's packing. But I guess they wanted to take us away for a minute and give some exposition rather than just cutting right to that. Because that was the only purpose. We don't need to know that he doesn't have a passport, but they wanted to show him and Daniel doing something on point. I think it was an opportunity for Miyagi to explain the history of Okinawa, you know, his personal history and what went down. Yeah, no, I think that could have been done anywhere. He could have done that at the breakfast table. He could have done it as soon as he got the letter. Yeah, so I think they just wanted to get us out of there. And maybe him getting a passport saying that I've never gone back and I've got to get a passport because when I left, that was it. Anyway, not a bad Wait, scene. Wait, hang on, just- hang on. I just realized something. I just said he went from Okinawa to Reseda. We do know that he spent time in the military. So Exactly. We don't, exactly. There was a whole group of years between when he left Okinawa to when Daniel met him. There was a whole bunch of years. I wonder what happened in those years. Well, he was married and they were going to have a child. So there's a whole storyline, which we never get to know beyond the first film, shedding just a little bit of light on it. You yeah. know, the Miyagi lost years. We'll, we'll uh, yeah, never the lost see years are, are, are like his uh, late 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Those are the Miyagi lost years. 
Yeah. Maybe in Cobra Kai, Daniel will stumble on some old book, you know, some old photo album, and we'll be able to piece some more things together hidden in a wall somewhere when they're at the Miyagi's house. Who knows? But I'd sure like to see a little bit of more of Miyagi's story play out, much like they did in Cobra Kai last season, showing Miyagi do the initial build out on his place. That was a really great scene. Mm -hmm. Yes. So after they leave the passport office and Daniel learns some of the stories about what happened in Okinawa, Next scene, yep. Daniel looks at old, old pictures of Yukie. Yukie is Miyagi's old girlfriend. Sato is his old best friend who was engaged to be married to Yukie. Miyagi tells Daniel the whole entire story about why he left Okinawa, and that is the crucial element because, unfortunately, Miyagi throughout the movie doesn't live that down and has to revisit his old best friend who is turned into his nemesis, Sato. And he seems to have a lot of sad feelings over what happened with Yukie, which is interesting. Like it's almost representing his first lost love or maybe the one that got away. He had been married and he had a child on the way. So, but for some reason, this movie really harkens on this relationship with Yukie and Miyagi's kind of has a lot of regret. He carries a lot of regret around. Do you think there's also this one moment, because in this one beat, when Miyagi is looking at a photograph and Daniel is kind of peeking in and looking at Miyagi, look at this photograph, and then he kind of lets his arm hang down and then he kind of puts his head down, like almost dread, like he's almost dreading going back to have to confront his past. Oh, totally. He's moved on. This is a new life. He's lived here longer than he lived in Okinawa. Yeah. So this is his life. So now I like this shot. We see this cab roll into frame and it says Valley Cab Company. Love it. Oh, yeah. Just like the All Valley Tournament. Exactly. This franchise loves the Valley. So now Daniel is supposed to see Miyagi off and he's not there. And so Miyagi is forced to leave in the cab. And thinks, well, okay, you know, Daniel's not here. Let's go. But this leads to another scene that cannot happen in today's culture. But Sal, what happens? Well, when you talk about the airports, you have to, when I talk about the airports, I talk about pre-9-11 and post-9-11. Pre-9-11 airports, you know what? I used to like to travel. I used to enjoy it. After 9-11, no. Miyagi is literally boarding the plane. He's talking to the stewardess. He's literally getting on the plane at this moment. Daniel runs up, right up to Miyagi and the stewardess. Yeah, not the gate. Says, he's literally at the plane, like right he's at, at the, the door plane of door. The plane. Yeah, yeah, he's at the plane door with his ticket, which means they don't check you in right before you go down the long runway. You just go to the plane and say, "Here's my ticket." Well, you also, when you and I have discussed this before, the fact that where did he get his passport? Did he have a passport? Did he well, get a passport the day he was, the day before with Miyagi at the passport place? Did he yeah, sneakily he, get a passport so Mr. Miyagi wouldn't know? When did he get a passport? Is that why he was behind Miyagi? <laughs> and then when after <laughs> Miyagi got his, he's like, I'll meet you outside in just a second. Yeah, that's suspect. And then Daniel convinces Miyagi to let him go to Okinawa with him. Yeah, exactly. He bought a ticket. 
you know, several hundred dollars. He got a passport, but Miyagi still could have said, eh, no, thanks, but no thanks. He has to talk him into it and he lets him go. But that moment when Daniel says, thank you to Miyagi for letting him go. Thank you for letting me go. And then Miyagi says, no, Daniel son, thank you. At that moment is where kind of the tables get turned and the student is there to support the teacher. This is true. This is true. It, now it's a buddy flick. So next we're on the airplane and I know it's a long flight. Well, you know firsthand. But what I thought about immediately, Sal, was the fact that the entertainment on an international flight was a good book. Yeah, there was no movies. Right? There was no movie either in the seat in front of you or on a laptop. That's it. You had a book or you slept or you chatted. That was it. Oh, no, they would show a movie, though. They did show like one movie and they just told you what it was going to be and then everyone could look ahead. They did do that. Oh, Back they would the have 80s. the one big. They would have the one big screen up. Yeah, ahead. they'd say the the screening oh. will be the Black Stallion. <laughs> what, yeah, the I just saw whatever, that. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, the, that's it. The, you're stuck. The with screening it. is whatever we are going to play, and you're going to watch it. And I don't even know. At one point in time, they probably didn't have individual headsets. At one point in time, it would probably just turn it up loud. And uh, if you don't want to see it, sorry. I, I'm sure yeah. that that was. Uh, that happened at one point in time. Eh? What did he say? <laughs> eh? He says he loves her, but he doesn't want to leave her. All right. So now Miyagi then shares that his father also trained Sato. And Sal, what else did we learn about where this conflict was going had Miyagi stayed in Okinawa? What would have well, happened? Okay. So Daniel is still probably reeling off his victory of the All-Valley Under-18 tournament. Yeah. But what Miyagi let, let him know is that, no, you don't understand. He wants to fight me to the death. This is not, there's not going to be a referee or judges. He wants to fight me, and the winner is the one who's still living. That's what he says in so many words. So that's when we learn that this is not just a fight, you know, to tap out. This is not a tap out fight. This is a fight no. to the death. No. Sal, have you ever been in a fight to the death? <laughs> uh, I've been fight where I thought I might die, but no, I have not been in a fight to the death. <laughs> Me neither, thank goodness. All right, so as soon as we get off the plane, not a beat later, I love how we see the branding, and it's plain as day, and there's this huge sign for Sato, and this is before we even see Sato in person, and it says... Learn karate at Okinawa's biggest dojo with Master Sato, 40 years official instructor of the U.S. military, proven in combat. So, Sal, Sato's a big deal. Well, he's not only a big deal in karate, because if you look at the entirety of this view, so you see the Sato karate poster, but surrounding the Sato karate poster are these other smaller ads. On the left, Sato Bank and Sato Realty. And on the upper right, Sato Escort Service. So this guy has his rods and a lot of fires. He sure does. And he stayed there and he became very successful. And it all started from learning 
from Mr. Miyagi's father, who's also Mr. Miyagi, actually. So that leads to the question, <laughs> what is Mr. Miyagi's name? Wait, wait, uh, how many movies? Wait, hang on. We have seen 20 episodes of Cobra Kai. We have seen, what, five Karate Kids movies? You know, you got the Karate Kid 1, 2, 3, and then you got the sequ- other sequels. We still don't know what Mr. Miyagi's first name is. No, so how do we refer to his father? <laughs> you, you know, know? what? I, I Mr. Miyagi Sr.? Mr. Miyagi the, Jr.? In the credits of the movie, of this here movie, in the credits, Miyagi's father. <laughs> that's, what, that's what he's known as. Okay, so they both learn how to fight from Miyagi's father. They were probably equal, I'm assuming. Miyagi's very skilled. And we'll get into Sato's disposition later. He's a bigger man. And, and the way he talks. But he stayed and became very successful, obviously. Just just see this one poster or see this one kiosk and you have an idea. So they walk out, kind of hail a cab, but there's this character there and his name is Chosen, which is a pretty funny name. And Chosen is there to pick them up from the airport. And Sal, I immediately do not trust this guy. There's just something about him. And, and maybe it's that super heavy handshake plus this fly collar and gold chains. But mm. I don't know. I don't trust him. And much like I felt about Crease all along, although Crease I'm intrigued by because he's charismatic. This guy, I don't like him. I don't trust him at all. How did you feel? Well, I think that it's normal to have a mistrust of people with an open polyester shirt with chains. It's just a normal instinct to not Thank trust this you. person. Uh, right. Chosen is Chosen is played by actor Yuji Okumoto. His mm-hmm. two sidekicks, Joey Miyashima as Toshio and Mark Hayashi as Taro. Taro, we don't see at first. We see Chosen and Toshio. They greet Miyagi and Daniel at the airport, picking them up in a 1958 Cadillac Fleetwood. Beautiful car. Very beautiful car, actually. And yeah, that moment where he gives him the extra firm handshake, and then he does this little thing, which I do know I used to watch in karate movies from the 60s and 70s. He does this little extra tag at the end of his statements, if you listen to his words. He does it at least three, four times in the movie, and he does it here for the first time, is where he says, I hope your stay here is a pleasant one. Yeah? He does a little, yeah. yeah? Yeah, he does that at the end. I love that because that's such karate uh, in the old days. Kung fu villains do that little, yeah. huh? Huh? Oh, you think you're going to be big in this town, huh? So he gives that extra firm handshake, and for sure, at that moment, any guy, maybe some women too, but any guy who's ever shaken another man's hand, you know these guys that do this death grip handshake. Yeah, and that's exactly what he does. It's a show of dominance, and Daniel sees that. But he and Miyagi get into this. 1958 Cadillac Fleetwood. Good point. Well said. And I would say the only positive that I can think about that is going on with the current state of affairs in our country, in our world, (laughs) is the fact that a heavy handshake is probably a thing of the past. Imagine a handshake in general. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. A, A handshake in general is probably like an assault. It's probably no longer acceptable. So a heavy one at that, you're not going to see those for years to come. Wow. You know what? I think we will live to see the day where someone will say, officer, arrest that man. They shook my hand. They attempted to shake my hand. That's attempted murder. Yeah. So don't trust him. But at this point in time, Mr. Miyagi thinks that, hey, you know, they know I'm coming in town. 
They sent someone to pick me up. That's great. But right away, post handshake, because Miyagi did not see this take place. Right away, Mr. Miyagi notices they're going the wrong direction, away from the village. And where does Chosen drive them to? Well, I have to mention the music. Chosen puts on some music oh, right, to, right, to, right. to attempt to like, hey, you're old. You like this music. That music that he put on in the car that Chosen put on was called Fascination Waltz. And if you look at trivia, is the same song that was playing at the country club party in the first Karate Kid movie. So oh, when they're at song, that country yeah. club, that yep. song is playing. So yeah, you Miyagi though realizes, yes. I recognize that. I didn't recognize it to be that, but I knew it was that time and era. And I, I always liked that. I think even Caddyshack had a scene where they had a very similar song, if not the same song, but good spot. Nice, nice job. So Miyagi though realizes, yes, like you said, he realizes something's amiss. He says, yep. a village south. Why we go north now? Now, I got to be clear here. Okay, and I'm being absolutely truthful here. I figured this out myself, and then I validated it later online. So Miyagi says, the village. so they landed in Naha. They were at okay. Naha Airport. He says, village south, why we go north now? They are supposed to go north because Kadena, where we're going to visit Kadena Air Base, we're going to meet in a moment, is north of Naha, and Tomi Village is in Kadena, which is north of Naha. So they got the geography kind of screwed up here. I have to fault the production on this. But he should have said, village north, why do we go south now? That's what Miyagi should have said to be geographically correct. But either way, they weren't taking them to the village. They were taking them to some hangar so yes. they could meet Sato. And now we get to confront Sato, who, despite all of the riches and all of his prestige and power, he still has this vendetta against Miyagi as if it was yesterday. Uh, uh. Sato, played by actor Danny Kamekona. I like the first thing that he says to Miyagi. The first, his first words. He hasn't seen his old friend in 45 years. The first thing he says, so coward, you return. I love that. That's it. It's on. Just like that. That's the, that's the, first, the first thing. In the background, I could see another huge building, and it had Sato's name on that. So we get oh, it. Yeah. He, he owns this town. He's so big. they have an exchange, and we know that the stakes are still very high. Miyagi's not just going to pop in and see his father and then get out of town. He's going to have to deal with Sato. Well, Sato, I believe, says, if I'm not mistaken, in the actual quote, You see father, then you see me. That's it. And then they're... Well, they don't even get a ride. They're just left to, they're left there in the hangar and they've got to, <laughs> they just, they just later, there. yeah, they've got to get a cab and now they're at the village. But this village they get to is now a U.S. military base. Yeah. So they arrive in a taxi. The cabbie seems lost. He doesn't know Tomi Village. So they arrive upon this, uh, they're doing construction. There's military guys. So they're asking, where's Tomi Village? Now, I don't know why the cabbie doesn't know where Tomi Village is as a cab driver. Right. They greet a soldier. The soldier says, this is Kadena Air Base. In other words, Tomi Village used to be here, but now it's Kadena Air Base. Now we know what happened to the village. So they find the right place. Things have changed. I mean, hey, Miyagi's been gone 40 years. Things change. And the first person we meet is Kumiko, who's played by Tamlin Tomita. Her oh. first movie 
But she has gone on to have an incredible career. I mean, countless shows and movies, but it all started here. Yep. And she is she was originally 20 years from, old. and where was she from, Sal? Well, originally from Okinawa, born in Okinawa, 20 years old at the time of this movie. Absolutely beautiful. I mean, I'm a little tongue-tied talking about her. She, I just think she's so beautiful and does a fantastic job. She's and this great. is indeed her, her debut role. So we learn that Kumiko is Yukie's niece. Now, Yukie, the former love of Mr. Miyagi. Right. So now we meet Yukie. And it's a beautiful scene. You have you know her and Miyagi seeing each other for the first time in 40 years. But we also learn that Yukie not only did not marry Sato, but she was never married. Mm, yeah. You know, it's kind of a sad thing to hear that someone didn't get married because who knows why. But she never got that opportunity. Miyagi probably only makes him feel worse, Sal. I mean, if he'd come back and Yuki had had a family, he could feel happy for her. But now he's probably even super hard on himself for leaving. And it's just really emotional. And that's the emotional chord of this entire film is their relationship and Miyagi's regret and the regret that he didn't get to spend the last 40 years with his father. And that's what got me. That's what made this movie compelling. And that's why I, I like that this was such a departure from the first film. And we weren't just prepping for All Valley 2, although that would have been really cool. But I love that this has this storyline in it. It's more of an adult storyline. Even though the original movie has the love line with Daniel and Ali, I do think amid the romantic backdrop of Okinawa, we see the reinvigoration of Yukie and Mr. Miyagi there over the body of his uh, ill father. They're having their reconnection. Now, by the way, I just want to give a couple of uh, cool trivia here. Miyagi's dad, played by actor Charlie Tanimoto, actually died only two years after the filming of this. And Nobu McCarthy, who plays Yukie, I think has an interesting story, born in Canada, raised in Japan, lived in the U.S., then died in Brazil in 2002 at age 67, and was also once Miss Tokyo. So I think had a very storied and interesting life. Wow. Yeah, she's very attractive and really great in this role. So next we see Miyagi, and he's training in the dojo. And he shares the family history with Daniel, as well as the secret to Miyagi family karate. Yeah, this is where we first learn about the Dendendaiko hand drum, now, I do want to say as a point of reference, and I'm pretty certain it's not spoken at all in this movie, is the phrase Miyagi-Do. Now, Miyagi-Do, we know about from Cobra Kai, mm -hmm. Miyagi-Do Karate, but there's no reference to Miyagi-Do, and throughout this movie, it's merely called Miyagi Family Karate. I think Daniel coined that phrase out of respect. Okay, so you that know. was not original. He coined it later with Cobra Kai. Yeah. And so there's another quick scene here, which we've talked about on Cobra Kai because they have a flashback to this very scene. But while we're here in the midst of this movie, where it came from, we have to talk about it because I always loved it. So this leads to Miyagi showing Daniel the rules. And Sal, please tell us what rule one and rule two are. There they are in the Miyagi family dojo and up on the walls in these sort of scrolls, vertical scrolls. I believe Japanese writing is done up and down also, like Chinese writing. Rule number one, karate for defense only. And then they go back 
Rule number two. First, learn rule number one. So there we go. That is that is the overall theme of Miyagi Karate or Miyagi-Do later. Karate for defense only. And that's very true. Miyagi takes a defense approach with crease, even with the Cobra Kai's when he had to save Daniel and they all had the wonderful skeleton outfits on. Sure, he uses offense, but it's defense first and then offense to kind of, you know, put down the attack. It's a wonderful tribute to that style. And I love that, that rule number two is just that. It's so perfect. See, you but know. this, but but later on, and I say later on, we're going to visit this again. Yep, yep. Miyagi's dad taught Sato. Yep. So theoretically, Sato and Miyagi would be sort of at the same level. Sato teaches Chosen. Mr. Miyagi teaches Daniel-san. So theoretically, Chosen and Daniel-san both have the same skill set or near same and know the same secrets going back to the Denden Daiku Handrum. So later on, I'm going to think, why doesn't Chosen know about Denden Daiko? So now we explore the village. And Sal, everyone seems to recognize Miyagi, and it's been so long. Well, I think that we have to assume his father is a renowned martial arts teacher. It seems like people are happy to see Miyagi. I don't think people are, I mean, mean, (laughs) except for Sato, obviously. I think he's seen as just sort of an old hometown boy come back to visit. Okay. So Miyagi and Daniel are walking along, and Miyagi is teaching more about the village history to Daniel. We look over, we see Ishiro playing music for the kids in front of the Shinto shrine. Miyagi keeps telling more about the village history to Daniel. Kumiko teaches the Oban dance to little kids. Now, Oban, which will be quite relevant as we progress in this movie, mm-hmm. Oban is a Japanese Buddhist custom to honor the spirits of one's ancestors. But that gives a little bit of history on the dance and the festival, which we will be seeing shortly. Okay. Yeah, and the dance is really beautiful. And Kamika's really good at it. She's good with the kids. And it's a nice sequence. So now Sato arrives, along with Chosen, who's got a different shirt, but yet same fly collar and gold chains. And Sato's upset, and he wants to fight right then and there until Yukie steps in. So, Sal, what do you think would have happened had she not stepped in? Okay, so this is where Sato says, you give me no choice, and he takes off his jacket, and he starts to get into position, ready to strike Miyagi. Well, I don't think Miyagi would have been there. I think in an actual fight, and I say this as a fight fan, I say this as somebody who's been watching martial arts his whole life, mixed martial arts since 93, I think that Miyagi would be too fast for Sato. Now, you don't want to get hit by a guy like Sato. You do not want him to connect with you. But I think that you can elude him and that Miyagi is fast enough to get out of the way of Sato's punches. So in an actual fight between Miyagi and Sato, I think that if Miyagi just stayed out of Sato's way, he could possibly wear down Sato, tire out Sato, and then finally defeat him in the end. Okay. I like it. Yeah, it'd probably be a great fight, but it's not going to happen right here. So when Yukie breaks it up, she also summons them to go see Mr. Miyagi's father, who is on his last breath, if you will. And so Sato and Miyagi go to see his father, and they hold hands, kind of out of tradition, I guess. Although there's this beneath the surface, they're about to kill each other, literally. 
and they have to put it aside and mourn together. So it's kind of a classic movie death as we see the last moment of his life. And so I just wish that we had gotten to know him a little bit better. I know that we showed up and he's already on his deathbed and there's that, but it would have been nice to see some flashbacks to a little bit younger Miyagi who could have played himself just looking a little bit younger, you know, take some of the gray out and even maybe like a young Sato. I think that this movie could have used just a little bit of that. I don't know what your thoughts are, but I didn't feel enough for Miyagi's father because I just didn't know him, but I felt for Miyagi, Mr. Miyagi, that is. I think that the movie at this point is letting us know that the father is sort of an ancillary character to propel yes. the plot and not as important because, but at that moment though, on his deathbed, if you recall, the father, Miyagi's father, grabs Sato's hand, grabs Miyagi's hand, and puts their hands together. He tries to make peace with the two of them. Miyagi's right. okay with it. That's right. Sato's the one who pulls away. So the father wanted to give peace between his son and his number one student other than his son. And the, unfortunately, Sato was not having it. Miyagi was okay with it. And yeah, he just kind of just kind of plops definitely a cinematic death where he just goes, it's almost like saying his last words. Like those were his last words. His last words were, I want peace with you too. Those were his last words. Wouldn't it have been nice to see some sort of flashback or something or even photos or just, just give me a little bit more. I was yearning for that. After this movie and after Cobra Kai, I am looking forward to the entire universe opening up, not only for the future, but in the past. I want to see Little Miyagi. I want to see little Sato. I want to see them as kids. They obviously grew up together. They spent their whole entire life together up until Miyagi was 18 and headed out due to disgracing Sato's honor. Otherwise, yes, I would love to explore their past. And I think that leaves it open to a whole nother uh, franchise to come along and explore Miyagi's childhood in Okinawa. Yes. So then Sato says... You have three days to mourn and then fight. So if I'm Mr. Miyagi, hey, guess what? I'm out in two days. We can just avoid this whole thing. I got two days to mourn. I'll hang out with Yukie, show Daniel around. I'm, I'm out of here. So things are in motion. We're going to be able to spend three days mourning and tying up some loose ends and rekindling some things. And there's at least pause now, which we didn't have before because Sato was ready to go to blows, you know, just a few minutes ago. And I love when they, when everyone morning lit the candles on the little, what would you say of that is Sal? Little rafts for these candles or? Well, by appearance for any of you familiar with the Southwestern custom of luminarias, where they is sort of a paper bag with a candle inside. Right. So this love is that. this is yeah, this is very similar, just a different decor, and obviously they float. So it's like them putting these colorful black luminarias uh, with a candle inside on the water, almost sending off your loved one. So in this scene, they're all gathered about and they're all putting these luminaria type little rafts on the water to uh, signify the departure of the loved one. In this case, Miyagi's father. And it's very touching, and it's such a great visual. It's at night. You have Bill Conti's score mm. swelling. It was really a beautiful moment and yeah. just a nice closure to the, his passing. And also at that very moment, if you notice, Sato is right there next to him. So, yeah, yeah. there is a pause. There, there's a pause here. 
and I'm almost reminded of they say that we're taught that during the Civil War, the North and South would take a break for Christmas. Yeah. So about that? I like that. It's like let's take a break here, you know. And I really like that a lot. So here, there's an actual break. He does give him three days. I don't think it's very long, but he does give him some time to mourn, and there is a momentary peace here. And this leads to perhaps, I would say, for me anyway, the most emotional scene in the entire franchise. And it's when Daniel shares about losing his father. And to your earlier point, here's the disciple kind of leading the teacher, and he's sharing about losing his father, and you can see the pain in Miyagi's eyes. In fact, Miyagi doesn't say anything for this entire sequence. And it's the first time that he's vulnerable and human, and we've never seen him like this before. And while this scene is going on from an acting standpoint, just the scenery, it's such a beautiful shot of them sitting next to each other and Daniel puts his arm around him as the sun rays come through the clouds above and there's a bonsai just in front of them. And it's just, it's such a magnificent moment, Sal. It just, it makes me tear up every time I see it. It really is. It's beautiful in every way. It's beautiful for the characters and for fans of the Karate Kid universe, but also from a naturistic perspective, I have been to Japan and those sunsets are beautiful. They have some beautiful sunsets there. So yeah, this was a fantastic scene in every way. And if you notice on the right-hand side of the screen, there's a little bonsai there as well. Yeah. So just that two shot from the back with the clouds and the ocean. And yeah, Daniel with his arm around Mr. Miyagi. Powerful scene, fantastically acted scene. Definitely, definitely beautiful. And Miyagi is not even really crying or bawling, but there's just tears in his eyes. I mean, that's, that's an incredible moment for him as an actor. And all of our collective hearts break to see Miyagi, who is this rock. Like you said earlier, we've all wanted a Miyagi in our life. So to see him in pain, it's like too much for us to bear. You know, it's just too much. And we've never seen it before. But this is also another example of how Daniel steps up to the plate. Every time Daniel has to do something, whether it be fight someone or comfort someone, I mean, you know what? The more I am involved in the Karate Kid universe, the more I actually fall in love with Daniel's character. I really do. I think that he's way more multifaceted than he would appear at first, especially based on the first movie. You know, he, he comes around, he's like a belligerent teenager. He's annoyed with his mother in the very beginning of the movie. But you see his evolution and you see how he changes and grows. I'm very proud of Ralph Macchio as an actor and very proud of Daniel as a character. Yeah, and I think that gets lost a lot as well, is that Ralph Macchio is an incredible actor. And for some reason, that just gets overlooked sometimes, I think. He doesn't get the credit is due because it's so convincing of a role, Daniel LaRusso, that people just take it for granted. But he's incredible. He really is. Even on Cobra Kai, you just see it like this guy's got range and he can churn on a, you know, a dime and be this guy and be charming. And he's really, he's really something. And there's a reason why these movies work so well. There's a reason why 35 years later, there's a TV show that's wonderful. And it's based on these characters because they not only had the story right and they got the right director and they got the right producer, but they got some incredible talent in Pat Morita and Ralph Maggio. So 
here we are. We leave this great scene and now we're back to training and we see Miyagi and Daniel and Daniel, I believe is improving. I think he's a better fighter now than he was at all Valley. He's learning more. And Sal, I love this flying cable technique. Please uh, describe this for our listeners. Well, Miyagi wants to continue the training. So this scene opens up with them doing some martial arts training. Then he takes him down to this cannery, which was a part of his childhood that was owned by Sato's father. And Sato's father gave Miyagi his first job at this cannery. But while Miyagi worked at this cannery, he would use this, I mean, geez, I'm not a fisherman. It's this swinging hook. It's it's a double-sided hook. It's about as big as an axe. It's pretty large. And it, it swings, and you have to get out of its way, or it literally impales you. So right. he uses this as a training device. He demonstrates. Daniel wants to do it. Daniel wants to say, I want to try it. At first, Miyagi is reluctant, because this, this is a deadly training exercise, literally. But then Miyagi says, okay, fine, and he attaches a block of wood. Now, when he's attaching this block of wood, I'm thinking to myself, okay, maybe he's not going to die, but he still can be seriously injured when a block of wood is flying at your face. The impact of this is still going to be strong, yes. So Daniel convinces Miyagi. Miyagi says, fine, lets the swinging rope go with the log on the end. And Daniel jumps out of the way. He doesn't know how to properly get out of the way. So he kind of jumps out of the way, falls into the water right next to this rope swinging thingy at the camera. And it hits, it hits really hard, and he would have been hit hard. And I thought it was like cork, but whatever. It's coming down really hot. And so true to Daniel's form, you know, he sometimes attempts things that he's not prepared to do. But there's a second one of these hooks up there. And this one, since Miyagi's coming down the ladder, there's not a cork on the end. So this is literally a hook. Daniel gets back up out of the water and he pulls this lever and the next one comes down full speed, unprotected. There's a huge hook. He could very easily get impaled, get killed. And so what happens this time? Well, this is the initiation of the drum technique. Yes. This is where we start to see the drum technique employed as brought to us originally by the Dendendaiku, and we will see later as well, not to spoil. So now Daniel employs the drum technique, which involves a twist, getting out of the way, and this hook goes so close, actually Mm -hmm. cuts part of his shirt. That's how close this hook was. So that's how how sheer that space was between him and that hook. So he barely moves out of the way, employing the drum technique. And then the hook goes into this wood and just sticks with his piece of the shirt with it. And he's like, oh, that was close. But you can tell that what I liked about that moment is that he is fearless, Sal. And he is a fast learner. Now, he doesn't have it down yet, but I know from martial arts, too, and all sports that I've played, it's about repetitions, and and that's how I am. It's like, do it a thousand times and master it. But Daniel's one of these guys, at least in these movies, that he picks things up very quickly. The word prodigy is not used, not much in our culture, let alone with these movies or Cobra Kai. But I think you could probably say at this point that Daniel would be considered a prodigy. Yeah, well, he has to, because if he was on a normal trajectory to become a black belt or be doing these things, these movies, they would never pan out. So he has to kind of be that character 
you know, that can go from zero to 60 very quickly. So not that he's at Miyagi's class, but that he is ahead of others, if you will. And so the next scene we have is Daniel is now going to expose Chosen in this interesting sequence, if you want to uh, elaborate a little bit. Daniel meets for the first time officially Ichiro. Now, Ichiro was the old friend of Miyagi's who was playing that uh, instrument there at the Shinto temple for the kids. So Ichiro drops a whole cartload of carrots right before Daniel. Daniel helps him with the carrots. They then go take the wheelbarrow of carrots over to the scales and weights that are set up by Chosen and his thugs. Now, if you see a guy like Chosen operating a scale, you pretty much can guess there's something crooked going on here. And that's what we find, because as they approach the scales, there's a movement. Somebody bumps into the scales. These weights fall down, and we learn and realize that these weights are little false weights. So therefore, the scales are not true and are not properly calibrated. And Chosen and his buddies... Maybe Sato is behind this. I mean, we don't know if Sato is behind this exactly. Right, exactly. But we see Chosen and his buddies are ripping off these villagers of their vegetables. And Chosen knows it's Daniel that's done this, and he's pissed. But he has all of these villagers coming after him. So chalk that one up to Daniel. He won that battle. But Chosen gets mobbed by the villagers. The villagers start attacking Chosen. Hey, you're cheating us. So it's a good moment to see Chosen get mobbed by these villagers. I wish we could have seen him get attacked and beaten up, but unfortunately we don't. Right. So now we see Miyagi, and he confesses that he should have taken Yukie with him to America. Now, Sal, that's just really sad. Now to have that kind of regret really reminds me of the Clint Eastwood, Meryl Streep film, Bridges of Madison County. To know that they turned their back on what could have been. And that, that's yeah. very sad. Yeah. The what could have been or the one that got away stories. Very sad. Yeah, definitely. So now Kumiko is teaching Daniel the dance. And again, Sal, he's a quick learner. He's picking this thing up right away. He is. And what I like about Daniel, especially in this moment, we see it. At first, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to do this dance out here on the road. But yet he does it. He does it anyway, even though he's not, he's very reluctant, you know? So I I like that. You know, you don't have to want to do something, yet you do it. So I respect that. So he starts getting his his, uh, dance lesson from Kumiko. She shows him what's called the Bond Dance, which again, we're going to be visiting later. And then at that moment, it seems like every time Daniel and Kumiko are starting to get closer, starting to get more intimate, something happens. And again, we yes. see now, yeah, Chosen and his thugs arriving. Chosen takes the Denden Daiko from Daniel, shoves Kumiko, kicks Daniel. Mm-hmm. And then as they're walking away, Kumiko throws a tomato at Chosen, hits him in the back of his polyester shirt. Right. So this really reminds me of the beach scene from the original Karate Kid. Here comes this bully and Daniel's bested yet again. But this is also another eye roll for me on this film. As much as I like it and it has a lot of strengths, it's got some weaknesses. And just, it's chosen yet again. He's always there. He's got nothing else to do but try to rip off villagers and hang out with these bullies and pester 
Daniel. And I think he even threatens to kill him in this scene. Oh, yeah. He says, if you disrespect my honor again, I will kill you. Yeah. So Daniel isn't even doing anything. No, nothing. <laughs> yeah. And yet this guy, his honor is, is all bent out of shape because of Daniel. You know what? Is it possible? And maybe do we learn in this scene that it's possible that Chosen has had a thing for Kumiko? Because remember when yeah. he throws the shirt back, he's like, you know you like it. Like he says something like that. Some sort of smart ass, you know you like my shirt. Like maybe he's known Kumiko. Maybe he's had a crush on her. She's never felt the same way. Maybe there's a little something there. Remember, there's a history there in Okinawa before Daniel got there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know. History repeats itself. This is a very Miyagi, Sato, Yukie storyline for sure. So they walk away. And stumble onto yet another beautiful scene. And I noticed that most of these beautiful touching scenes are with the adults in this movie. And I think that's maybe was lost on me when I saw the movie for the first time. But as an adult, I'm more moved by it. But yeah, we see Miyagi and Yukie having a tea ceremony. And Sal, why don't you explain that for us? Well, to the casual observer like myself, or in this case, Daniel, you look on, you see two people in Japan drinking tea together. You don't really know what's going on. So Daniel asks Kumiko, what's going on? And that's when Kumiko lets Daniel know they are falling in love again. So we learn that this is a ceremony that is an expression of love, either reacquainted love or new love. Yeah. That's pretty heavy, though. They are falling in love again. Wow. That's big. Though. I like this. I like it. I like ceremonies. And that was one of the reasons why I used to like to go to church. Not necessarily that I went for all the rules and so forth, but I like ceremony. And that's why when you, yeah, when you look at the tea ceremony later on, I like how every movement is intentional, ceremonial, is deliberate. I like that stuff. I've always enjoyed watching ceremonies occur. You probably like structure as well. Yeah, I kind of do. Maybe that's part of it. You know, I'm really drawn to martial arts because a lot of it has to do with the ceremonies or this the structure or the way things are done. And then there's achievements and you get to the next belt. And so I'm really drawn to it. Now, I've never had a tea ceremony, which I think is really cool. But I, too, share the fondness for ceremonies. And I think that's why I've kind of been so captured by martial arts. Okay, so... Now Daniel and Kumiko are going exploring. And while they do so, we hear the infamous Peter Cetera track, Glory of Love. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting moment because the music starts to play as they start to go observe King Shohashi's castle ruins. And I like the words who just, I don't know if this just kind of happened or if Peter Cetera wrote it this way. The lyrics... Just like a knight in shining armor from a long time ago, just in time, I'm going to save the day, take you to my castle far away. As they're at the castle, did that happen accidentally or was that on purpose? So why don't you give us a little rendition of the chorus from the song? It's a great track. Just like a knight in shining armor from a long time ago, just in time, I'm going to save the day, take you to my castle far away. All right, there we go. Great song. Yeah, I'm not sure to answer your question if it was written for the scene. Is this song not written for the soundtrack? This song was originally scheduled for Rocky Four, was it? It was one of the Rockies that they had hoped this song oh, was going right. to go to. That's right. But yeah, but instead it was replaced by another song and they decided to use this song for the Karate Kid 2. 
And Bill Conti was supposed to be the composer for Rocky IV because he had done Rocky one through three thus far and chose to do Karate Kid Part Two. But along with Avildsen, they both came back and worked on Rocky V. So. Yeah, so what happened was Glory of Love was supposed to be in Rocky, but was instead Hearts on Fire was chosen over Glory of Love for the Rocky films. So then the Glory of Love came into the Karate Kid 2. So now we're in the city and both Daniel and Kimiko are looking at TVs in the window of a store. And she shares her dream of being a dancer. And then out of nowhere, actor B.D. Wong appears. Well, I've always loved B.D. Wong from many of movies and TV shows, including Jurassic Park and the Jurassic Worlds. And he invites him to a dance. So she's dreaming of being a dancer. And now she can go to this dance and show off some moves. He's credited, I think, as Flyer Kid. Yeah, Flyer uh, Kid. And he's, yeah, and he's credited as, as Brad Wong with two Ds, Brad Wong. And then he became B.D. Wong. I'm curious how Brad Wong became B.D. Wong. But yeah, so... Brad Wong, who we've seen in, in all these crime shows, here he is as a kid passing out flyers for a dance on the street. And he just looks so great in this scene, like so out of place. Here's this like kid, you know, he looks like he's right out of Hollywood, like extras casting and giving them a flyer. Sure, bring your friend. He's super excited, upbeat. And next we see Sato's Dojo. It's right across the way and Daniel has to get a closer look, of course. And as he peeks through the window, very reminiscent of Daniel walking up and looking through the window at Cobra Kai, and he sees Chosen is head of the class, much like Johnny Lawrence, and he takes on four attackers and, of course, yeah. best them all. Yeah, he has two guys. One guy grabs his right arm. One guy grabs his left arm. So you got two guys holding you, and then you got two guys attacking you. And yeah, Chosen beats up four guys in his class he essentially beats up four of his students is what he does. Right. And they train hard. Very Cobra Kai style here at Sato's Dojo. So they see that. And then Daniel wants to keep moving. And they stumble into, I guess it's a bar. I mean, I don't know if people are getting drunk in there, but it's kind of like a bar. And Kimiko is, is resistant. She doesn't want to go in there because she says, you know, bad people, bad things happen in there. But Daniel, you know, he's stubborn as we know he is. And he takes them in, and we can see that GIs are all over the place. And one in particular is attempting to strike through sheets of ice. And tell us who this particular GI is, Sal. This guy's credited as being GI number one. His name is Clarence Gilliard Jr. Well, Clarence was in Die Hard and Top Gun, so he went on to be in some other big movies. I recognized him right away, but he fails in his attempt to hit through these sheets of ice. And for those who haven't seen this film or it's been a long time, there's these sheets of ice. I don't know, were they about an inch thick or I, I'm just be guessing. I'd probably say about 18 inches tall each one. And yeah, I would probably yeah. say about an inch thick, I would say. And they have them kind of slotted. So with gaps in between, you've got to hit it, Sal, I guess, like with kind of a side motion, you know, like a ridge hand, because it may be kind of a, can you describe this to the listener at all? You would be slicing at a horizontal chest level. 
right? Because these yeah. things are in front of you. I think what you should hope to do is that you hit the first one. If you could break that first one, that first one breaks the second one, that second one breaks the third one, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you really got to make sure that you can crack that first one, hit it hard enough so that it then subsequently breaks the rest of them. But yeah, it's like right in front of you, six slots, six pieces of ice, vertical, and then you got to slice through them horizontally and with a karate chop. Well, Impossible. I, think, I mean, I don't think I could do it. I don't think GI number one had six sheets of ice. I think he only had three or four. Yeah, and his form was something to be desired. I mean, again, I've watched enough fights to say he had no prep. He had no poise. He had no skill. He may be able to fight in a barroom fight, but when it came to using proper technique to slice these things, it left a lot to be desired. Right. So GI number one, he fails, and he overhears Daniel saying why he failed. And of course... He says, hey, if you can do better, you know, do it, go for it. And, you know, Daniel has already figured it out again, back to my point that he might be some sort of prodigy or at least a fast learner. I'll give him that. So he's challenged. And so what happens now? Well, he's challenged, but he's not going for it. You know, he, he doesn't want to do it. He may think he knows how to do it, but here he is in a foreign country. What? And this is only, what, eight months later after the All Valley? So he may not even be 18 yet. We don't know when his birthday is. So here he is, a, a very young man or older teenager, here on this island, being challenged by these American GIs to do something ridiculous. So yeah, he may have had his opinions on how it should be done, that he shared that with Kumiko on how he should use the hips and all that. But he doesn't want to do it. And so he's like, I'm out of here. And he wants to get out of there. And who arrives? Who arrives, of course? Chosen. Of course. And he doesn't just arrive, Sal. He's fully dressed in street clothes. It wasn't two minutes earlier that he was taking on four attackers at Sato's dojo. And he was in his full gi. And so now are we led to believe that he changed? It looks like he showered. He did all that and got over here in two minutes and happened to know that something's going on and Daniel is here. Another eye roll from me. Now, and these are starting to mount. These are starting to mount. I think it's entirely possible that there was more time elapsed between them seeing Chosen in the dojo and then this ice breaking happened. There was more time that elapsed there, which I don't think the movie properly displayed. Uh, I think that they should have maybe added another scene or we should have seen the clock or something. Because if you remember, as the scene progresses, who else arrives? Everyone arrives. Oh, I, we'll get to that. I know. But I still feel, even if that's the case, even if you're right, I wish we had established it. I wish we had cut to Miyagi and Yukie and then cut back. I wish we had cut to someone running to Chosen in the locker room and saying, you know, blah, 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 Daniel's over there doing this. I just wish there would have, because these are the moments that I just can't stand when things just don't make sense. Now, maybe there was a scene cut, you know, could have happened. Toshio sees them as soon as Kumiko and Daniel walk into the bar. Toshio, remember one of the thugs, yeah, sees he them and he, yeah, he runs out and he goes to get Chosen. I could only imagine that it's entirely possible that if there wasn't a lot of time elapsed, then Chosen wears his clothes under his gi. Or just comes in in his gi, you know? I'm cool with that. Uh, maybe Chosen even thinks that that would be disrespectful to the gi, maybe. We didn't do it earlier in this film either, so maybe there's something to be said for that. Yeah, I mean, you're not supposed to walk around in your gi, are you? 
No, you don't see people walking around in their gi, but if he had to go over there so quickly, that would make more sense. Anyway, but literally, not 10 seconds later, Mr. Miyagi and Yukie are now here. And give it a beat, Sal, and out of nowhere, here's Sato. So I have no idea how on earth everybody knew something was brewing and Daniel had gotten himself in yet another pickle. Yeah, it's such an interesting convergence that there's the village over there. Here they are in the city, and yet everybody's, everybody shows up. Everybody shows How up. How small is the city? There's Sato's Dojo. There's some TVs for sale at the store. And then there's the place where the GIs hang out. That's it. That's all that's there. If you're not at one, you're at one of the others. So anyway, so now the bet is on. It's $600 to hit through six sheets of ice. And Sal, I believe six is the max that this can hold. Am I mistaken? It looked pretty full. Yeah, I think that this only holds up to six. Then these guys were trying to do three, and now here's Daniel trying to do six. Now Mr. Miyagi gives some classic Miyagi advice. And what does he say, Sal? He tells Daniel to focus. And Daniel says, and what are you going to do? Pray. And thus begins the breathing technique from the beginning of the film. This is where you see that everything that Daniel learns from Miyagi ends up being a fight technique or that he can employ it in his fight techniques. Sato oversees the breathing technique and recognizes it because Miyagi's doing it and Daniel's alongside, so he's getting him in the right state of mind. And this leads to Daniel, who's never done this before, by the way. It's not like he got one shot at these. No, he got in the right state of mind and he hit it clean and broke the first one, like you said, and succeeds. And what happens after that? So Daniel is successful at giving a karate chop to these slats of ice. Yep. Everybody's excited. They won the bet. They walk over to, to Sato, who's sitting there, I think, in a state of shock. Chosen doesn't want to give him the money. Sato makes Chosen give them the money. They walk out, and leaving behind Chosen, very pissed off about losing so much money, and Sato there in a state of shock sitting there at the bar. Exactly. And so they walk out and Miyagi gives Daniel half the money and says, you know, this is for college because he spent around $300 on the plane ticket and they're going to go off for some Chinese food. So yet again, Chosen loses that battle, but yet we're still in the mourning period. So Sato is standing down at this point in time. So now we're at the dojo and Miyagi plays a prank on Daniel and fake hits him. And they're growing and calls it what, Sal? Primary target. Primary target. And he got a real kick out of this moment, which I thought was hilarious. Although this is some foreshadowing, so remember that. Remember that. Every time Miyagi teaches you something, you're going to have to use it later. Every time. Every time. And then uh, Kimiko brings Daniel some dance clothes, which is amazing that she has the presence of mind to either make or find or has access to dance clothes. And Sal, have you ever worn dance clothes like this? Do you have any dance clothes? Well, no, because I don't think at this moment in time we know that this is going to be 1950s dance. 
right? No, when Flyer no. Boy Brad Wong brought the flyer to Kumiko and Daniel, he just said, come to the dance tonight. So she made him special 1950s apparel for tonight's dance. She's amazing. And no, no, no. I've never had any, uh, nobody make me clothes and I never had any special clothes to wear to the dance. No. So the next thing we hear, of course, is Chosen calling for Mr. Miyagi and then he and his thug friends destroy one of the gardens. Well, because he says, my uncle told me to come pick you up. Your three days of mourning are over. Right. And then, of course, Miyagi says, I'm not going to go fight your uncle. So then that's when Chosen goes, okay, fine. And then they start to destroy the garden. That's Chosen and Toshio and, uh, anyway, the third guy. Yeah. Thug number three. Thug number three. So Miyagi does decide to go visit Sato at his beautiful home and garden. And Sato's wearing a gi with a red belt, which gave me pause for a moment, Sal, because in my martial arts, in Hapkido, where I train at American Hapkido Karate, the belts go as such. White, orange, yellow, green, blue, brown, red, black. And then there's second degree black, third degree black, and up from there. My master, for instance, is an eighth degree black belt. So to see Sato, who we know to be you know, renowned and a master in his own right, I didn't understand why he was a red belt. So I went online, I researched it, and here's what I found out. A red belt is one of several colored belts used in some martial arts to either denote rank or differentiate opponents in a competition. In some schools, especially those with lineage related to judo, a red belt signifies ninth or 10th degree Dan rank, the highest rank attainable. So Sato must fall under that because he's obviously reached the pinnacle, I would say. Well, I was so wrapped up in him hitting an inanimate piece of wood that I actually didn't notice his belt. Now, I know you might have noticed his belt because you recently obtained a higher belt in Hapkido. Is that true? I did. And thank you. Go ahead and give us a humble brag. So so you went up. No, 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 no. So what belt were you and where are you at now? So I will tell you, and the reason I'm excited by this is because, as you know, when I got involved with Cobra Kai and wanted to do this podcast, it tapped into what was missing, something that was missing in my life, and that was martial arts. And I got back into it and found the new dojo and kind of started this journey again to pick up where I left off and go much further, I hope. So I was a white belt in the beginning, and I tested and became an orange belt several months ago. But I recently tested again, and I'm now a yellow belt. So I've gone white, orange, yellow. Is there a red belt in your future, or does it only get up to the uh, ninth degree black belts? Oh, no. I, I mentioned the red. Yeah, red is right before black belt. Oh, okay. So you will hit red, but not that ultimate red that Sato wears. No. Once you hit the red, it's right before the black, and then it's black from then on out. Okay. I never knew about the red belt before tonight. I never knew about it. And by the way, congratulations on your recent belt of yellow belt, and I look forward to seeing your Thank you. continued advancement. So, okay, so Sato is hitting this wood. Miyagi approaches him, tries to reason with him. He asks about the wood. Mm -hmm. He asks, is this the wood that we found that one time? And then Sato answers, same, what do you want? 
And Miyagi wants to reason with him. Sato's not having it, walks away. And I forgot what happens when he walks away here, but Sato is not going for the reasoning of Miyagi. And then he walks away, and then Miyagi is left standing there, kind of caressing the wood, I think going back in time, probably thinking of the lighter days, the fonder days of when they were kids and when they found this piece of wood. But yeah, the scene ends with Miyagi just kind of there alone with the piece of wood. So Sal, Sato had chosen, go and get Miyagi to bring him to him to fight to the death. Miyagi chose to show up on his own. There he is. He is on Sato's property. How come he did not fight him to the death right here and now? I think Sato must have realized that he came for uh, other purposes and didn't come to fight. He has the sixth sense. You know when someone is threatening toward you or you know when someone is fearful of you. And Miyagi's not like that in this moment. So I think that it was just his fighter's sense, his martial arts sixth sense, which led him to realize that Miyagi is not there to fight. But yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. That was right on the coattails of Chosen being sent over to go get Miyagi. And now, yeah, a beat or two later, Miyagi shows up. So yeah, that should have been Sato's uh, cue, but yet it wasn't. That's correct. Maybe Sato dislikes a crowd or, or he's got to be in the fighting mood, you know? And he was ready that one day and then Miyagi's father passed. And so he just wasn't feeling it. And maybe he took his frustrations out on that moment on that wood, which he probably thought was Miyagi. And maybe he was uh, not as angry after working out some of that tension. But yeah, it just seems like they're meandering around. It's like there's always a reason why they're not going to blows. And, and, that, and that theme continues in this whole movie. Yet maybe another eye roll for me, but that's just kind of how it goes. So he leaves. You're right. Uh, Sato walks away. Miyagi's left. And so now Daniel and Kumiko are at the dance. And as we've already talked about, it is a glorified sock hop. Something right out of the 50s. Yeah, so they're at the dance. And this is where we get into some more cool trivia. I would call it a triple whammy with Happy Days, the television show Happy Days. Oh, yeah. Because not only is the song Rock Around the Clock that was playing at this dance that Daniel and Kumiko are at, Rock Around the Clock was the theme song for the television show Happy Days. Now, Noriyuki Pat Morita, who plays Mr. Miyagi, had a role as Arnold. He was on 26 episodes from 1975 to 1983. And here's the third whammy for Happy Days and the last tie-in. Nobu McCarthy, who plays Yukie, played Momo, Arnold's fiance. Remember, that's the role that Pat Morita played on Happy Days in 1976. So that's a triple Happy Days tie-in. Wait, Yukie played his fiance? Yukie played Momo on an episode of Happy Days. Momo was Arnold's fiance on an episode wow. of Happy Days in 1976. That's right. That's awesome. I did not know that. That's really cool. I find it all. I bring that information to you. Thank you, sir. So back to the dance. It's funny how Daniel was very reluctant to dance earlier with Kamiko and then picked it up, you know, the traditional dance and enjoyed it and had some fun with it. But I had no idea, Sal, that Daniel could do this 50s dance. And he was out there strutting his stuff. And apparently he learned all this from his mother, which is hilarious. He did a really great job at this sock hop. And I got to tell you, as soon as he walks into the dance, 
I started having PTSD going back to the Halloween dance that was only nine months earlier. <laughs> right. Good point. I cannot relax in this in this scene yet. So anytime in this entire film we're having a good moment, it is quickly followed up by an appearance from Chosen. And true to form, Chosen and his thug friends arrive at the dance. Yeah, Chosen is the ultimate cock blocker in human form. <laughs> he absolutely is. And what happens next, Sal? Daniel gets roughed up. Chosen takes Daniel's money, which Chosen believes is his money, just from losing the bet. He steals the money, returns the wallet, dropping it on the ground. So while Daniel is kneeled down, grabbing his own wallet, that's where he remembers primary target. And at this moment, one of the thugs has Kumiko in a rear, what we call a, a rear choke. So while Daniel's down there, he remembers primary target and punches Chosen right in the family jewels. Yes, the family jewels. So, yeah, I think Kumiko's kind of in a Johnny Lawrence hold of which Kreese had him in earlier in the film, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it would almost be a rear naked choke. I don't know if, if rear naked choke has to do with the leg wrap around too. I think if you just get somebody with a neck choke from the back, it's, I think it's called a rear naked choke. So yet another sequence that never gets too out of hand, although Daniel did take a hit, but he gave a hit back and they escape and he got his money back. So later that night, Sato and Chosen and Pals, they arrive at the village and they're summoning Mr. Miyagi. Who's not there, by the way, right? He's not there at this point in time. Yeah, Daniel's settling in for the night. He's like ready to, to hit the hay. Yeah. And then that's when you hear, Miyagi, Miyagi, come out. Miyagi, we fight now. Because Sato needs to fight at midnight. He <laughs> yeah. can't fight. <laughs> it's such, a, such an odd time to fight someone. Yeah. yeah. And so he leaves, but then Chosen and Thugs begin to destroy the dojo, and bonsais while holding Daniel. Well, to jump ahead, if I may. Yeah, please. This is why it was so painful in Cobra Kai. So painful for Daniel oh, to see the I destruction know. of the Miyagi-Do dojo because he was having flashbacks to the Miyagi family dojo being destroyed in Okinawa. Yeah, now I get it. Now I get it. Or the dojo being destroyed in Karate Kid 3. But we'll save that one for Oh, my God. Podcast. Okay, so, so Karate Dojo's getting destroyed is just is now embedded in uh, Daniel's psyche. And I could only imagine he has PTSD. I know I do. So just seeing rule number one and rule number two being speared by Chosen as he laughs. You know, these guys, these villains in these movies, it's one thing to do evil. It's one thing to laugh as you do evil. And that's what Chosen does. So he's yeah. there laughing and smiling, having a great time being destructive because Sato told him, leave them a message. And that's what they're doing. They're leaving a message. Exactly. And luckily, Mr. Miyagi arrives. And Sal, this is a pretty good fight sequence. It is. Well, Miyagi arrives, says, enough. There's some wonderful music perfectly in sync with that. Taro and Toshio are dispatched by Miyagi pretty quickly. Chosen is also subdued, but is spared by Miyagi. And of course, Chosen calls it act of coward to be spared by Miyagi. And also, apparently there was one moment, I read some more trivia, 
that that moment when Chosen does hit Miyagi on the back with that spear is the only time in Karate Kid folklore when Miyagi is struck, was right there with that stick by Chosen. That's interesting. So, but also during this whole sequence, Daniel's not able to help. He's being held off and then he never really gets involved. So Miyagi best all three of them. And it's in a really neat setting though, because it's in the garden and they're using like a walkway. And then there's this one staff that has a spear on the end of it. And I didn't notice any stunt doubles, Sal. It really looked like it was Mr. Miyagi doing his own stunts. Yeah, I was pretty impressed. I would imagine by this time, our actors have had plenty of time to train. And I would say overall, I was pretty impressed by Noriyuki Pat. I say, I always want to say Noriyuki. That's what he's officially born as Noriyuki. And then he still uses it later on up until his death. So Noriyuki Pat Morita had plenty of time to train for this. And I was pretty impressed by some of his kicks, some of his uh, swift backhands. And yeah, yeah, this is a very interesting setting. And Daniel couldn't do much. He was kind of subdued, but all the rest of these guys got taken out by Miyagi. But one thing I found pretty interesting is that at the end of the fight, Daniel and Miyagi retreat inside back into Miyagi's home. Chosen kicks over a statue. Right. So really the guys are still out there and you just walk back in. Was that the end of it? I mean, these guys are just going to go home now? I mean, I, I just didn't really see that that would be the end of it if these guys are still right outside your home, which doesn't seem to have uh, real high security. Miyagi says to Daniel that they're going to go home tomorrow. So at this point in time, we're assuming, you know what? This is the end of it. They're finally going to go home and be out of this mess. Exactly. And then Miyagi talks with Yukie, and it's another touching scene because she asked him to take her with him. Yeah. Miyagi asks, what can I do to ease your pain? And Yukie answers, take me with you. I mean, oh... If this woman doesn't love Miyagi, I don't know what love is. I mean, look how long she's held on to this. But yeah, Daniel's packing his suitcase, looks outside, sees uh, Kumiko standing lonesome on the pier. She's doing a sort of ceremony. He heads out. That's when he hears Miyagi and Yukie saying their goodbyes. Yukie's crying. Daniel approaches Kumiko on the pier. She's doing an old fishing custom, pouring rice into the water for a quick return. Because that's what Daniel asked. He goes, oh, are you doing that for a a big catch? She goes, no, for a quick return. So we know that at that moment that she's doing a special ceremony for a quick return of Daniel and possibly Miyagi. They have a wonderful moment. They talk about America. She asks about America. He tells her about America. He professes his love for her. So this is where we officially see Daniel professing his love for Kumiko in this scene. And then just as they're about to kiss. Hang on. Before that, I think this would have been a good time to play Peter Cetera's song one more time. Like a shining, <laughs> shining armor and a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He's also trying to recruit her to, to live in the U.S., to come over. And, you know, she's taking this in. There's no dance studios there. It sounds like an interesting idea. But as you were getting ready to say, and yes, true to form, it's not chosen this time. But it is Sato. Yeah, big ruckus behind them, construction equipment coming through behind them in the village. So they get up, leap up from the pier where they're having this romantic moment, and then head back to see what's going on. And they see this bulldozer running Mm -hmm. through a garden as all these villagers are standing there in horror. And uh, Miyagi approaches Sato, because Sato's standing there. What are you doing? And Sato says he sold all the land. I don't know if he said he sold the land or he's going to sell the land. Basically, he owns the land, so he can do whatever he wants, and he's going to destroy the village. 
Yeah, well, he threatens to destroy the village if Miyagi will not fight him. So finally, Miyagi, kind of feeling forced and pressured, agrees to fight Sato on one condition, that the title to the land pass to the village forever. And Sato reluctantly agrees, but warns that if Miyagi doesn't fight, the village will be completely destroyed, everything will be gone, their homes, their church, everything gone. So Miyagi knows that he has no choice. He has to stand and fight. Yeah. Sato's really an angry person. <laughs> and what's interesting is this whole thing stems from Yukie not following through to marry Sato because her and Miyagi had feelings. So Miyagi flees. So Sal, correct me if I'm wrong here. But with Miyagi out of the picture, Sato had 40 years to woo Yukie or any other woman, because he doesn't seem to be with anybody, and he has failed. So maybe a lot of this hatred is inward. Sato is carrying around a ton of baggage and taking it all out on Mr. Miyagi. Well, Sato has no game, apparently. No game. Because, he, okay, so at one point in time, he was promised to marry Yukie. She was promised to marry him. So once Miyagi was out of the picture, then yeah, Sato could have made his move. And if not immediately, at least within a couple of years, been able yeah. to finally marry Yukie. But yeah, no, he didn't. Maybe he was just too focused on building his business empire and romance was not a part of it. So that's what obviously happened. But this hatred burns like it just happened recently. It's amazing that... Someone is this upset. Now, listen, I'm not that familiar with the Japanese culture. And, and maybe, you know, this is uh, his pride was forever scorned. Was Sato and Yukie an arranged marriage? Is that what I'm led to believe? It was an arranged marriage. Because if you remember, Mr. Miyagi told Daniel that Sato's family was richest in village. That's right. Yeah, Yukie's that's family right. poorest in village. So it made sense. So yeah, they were an arranged marriage. And if you remember also, when Daniel and Kumiko sat down at the sock hop, he asked if she was arranged to be married to anyone. Remember she asked, I thought that was cute. Yeah. She asked him, are you arranged to be married to anybody? And that's when he says, no, I'm a free agent. So yeah, that's right. this is ancient history. You're, this is a, a whole other topic, but the concept of dating, as we Americans know as dating, is new in human history. Nobody yeah. dated. Nobody dated a thousand years ago. They were, they were set up by families a thousand years ago, or you didn't get together with anybody. So this whole thing is dating is new. You were definitely set up by families back in the old days, and, and this is as far back then as 45 years in Okinawa. So that would lead me to ask this. Miyagi leaves. Didn't work out with Yukie. Maybe she sought her true feelings and no longer wanted to be part of this arranged marriage. But with this incredibly powerful, influential, and rich family of Satos, how does someone not arrange another marriage for him? Yeah, and why would Sato's family arrange a marriage with Yukie's poor family? What, what would they have to gain from that? So yeah, if you dig into it, it probably doesn't make as much sense as, uh, as it should. Because I believe in the old days of arranged marriages, a rich family would try to arrange a marriage with another rich family. 
not a yeah. poor family. So I don't think, yeah, in that respect, it doesn't make sense. The arrangement makes sense, but as far as the families, it doesn't really make sense. So I'm thinking then that if Sato, coming from a rich family, was going to be arranged with Yukie, coming from a poor family, he really loved Yukie. So that's why this anger burned for 45 years. But I think that he should have let that anger, he should have used that anger to win over Yukie instead of being pissed off, hitting a piece of wood and thinking of Miyagi for 45 years. Yeah. And it might have made more sense in the storyline had Sato and Yukie married. They wed, let's just say. But it was never, they never had the sparks. Because I'm sure a lot of arranged marriages just kind of, hit a certain threshold and they don't because they weren't built on a mutual attraction, admiration. Maybe some of them turn into that, but others probably didn't. They didn't hit those high notes. And let's just say that they were married and Miyagi came into town due to his father's health. And Sato saw that they had something he didn't have. And that would almost make more sense to me why Sato has this anger in him and jealousy. But that would then paint Miyagi in a different light. And I think that it's more innocent to have Yukie be this single person. But trust me, I've had time to think about it. I've watched this film twice recently, preparing for this episode. And another plot point I have a little bit of issue with, and is why I look at this movie is the best of the sequels, but it just falls short on many occasions, in my opinion. Yeah. No, I no, I agree. I agree. I think that that would have made sense. But the problem is, though, you then wouldn't have been able to have these tender moments between Miyagi and Yukie if, if she was married to Sato. I, I, exactly. I, don't, I don't think so. And, and Miyagi would look like a bad guy. He would look like a homewrecker. I totally get it. You can't have that. He would have been a twice homewrecker then, if that's the case. Remember, Miyagi left Okinawa in shame. He broke tradition. He broke culture. He embarrassed everyone. So Miyagi left Okinawa on bad terms, and I think that if he were to then go back and then get involved in a marriage that was current with Sato and Yukie, yeah, that wouldn't have been looked good on Miyagi. No. So anyway, just riffing there, but things I've thought about and things I, I have issues with. So now we cut to Mr. Miyagi, and he's giving Daniel his last will and testament. He's getting his affairs in order, so to speak, Sal. And what does he give Daniel? in his will. So he gives Daniel the house in Canoga Park and the truck, the 1941 light-duty Chevrolet. But of course, Daniel's like, I don't want the house and the truck. I want you. You know, Let's just get out of here. Daniel's trying to convince him, let's just hop on a plane and get the hell out of here. Forget about it. Forget about this uh, honor garbage. But Miyagi says it is impossible. But Miyagi says no matter what happens, the village is safe forever. So at this moment in time, Miyagi's stuck. If he leaves, the village gets destroyed. If he stays in fight, he may die. He is screwed either way. You know, sometimes in life, I talk about this with friends all the time. Sometimes in life, you have two bad choices. And you got to choose between two bad choices. Hell, you can say a lot of our elections are this way. So you got to choose between two bad choices. So no matter what, they're both bad choices, but at least he knows the village is safe no matter what he does. Well, and a guy like Mr. Biagi and maybe the Japanese culture as a whole, to die of honor is not a bad way to go out. You know, and he knows winning or losing saves the village. So he's at peace with that, I would say. That's why he stepped up to fight him finally to end this, only to save the village forever, no matter what happens. And I mean, that's 
that's kind of big of him, but there's no way Miyagi's going to back out now, is what I'm no. trying to say. No, no. He may no have way. bailed earlier if there's no reason to fight, but now there's a reason to fight. But my last point on the will, my question to you is, what about all the other classic cars? I mean, not the one that Daniel owns, but there's three others. Is, is that part of the will? Yeah, they kind of left that out in this movie. I think that they appear again in Karate Kid 3. But yeah, the cars are not there in Karate Kid 2. I think we only have to assume. Now, obviously, to the newcomer, they would not know about these other cars. But for those of you familiar with the franchise and longtime fans, you know there was a collection of cars in the first movie. Where is that collection of cars in the second movie? And yeah, Daniel should be getting all those cars too. Unless, of course, for all we know, Mr. Miyagi left those cars to the Peterson on Wilshire. Maybe he left them to the Peterson Automobile Museum, which, by the way, is an incredible place and should be visited by all. But maybe he willed them to someone else. Someone else from the Seven Seas or someone else in Miyagi's life, of which who, perhaps who we've never met. We'll never know. Yeah, I mean, why should Daniel get everything? Surely there are some people, some nice people. Hell, maybe the mailman gets a car, you know? There are some nice people in Miyagi's world who maybe deserve something so that Daniel doesn't necessarily need to get everything. Hell, a house and a car is plenty. Two cars, actually, right? He would get the truck and the car that he's already been given. So Miyagi will, at that point, given him two cars and a house. I think he's good. Anything else can go to any other beloved ones. Agreed. So now we see Daniel walking around the village, And he sees Sato praying. And Sal, he looks quite scary and focused in the scene. Well, I did like this scene that we get to see another side of Sato. But I wasn't certain what was actually taking place. Was he just going about his normal daily ritual? Or was he literally preparing mentally for the upcoming fight? Is that what what you saw him doing? That's what I thought. You know, you get your game face on. He's getting into it. Okay, so this is at the Shinto temple where Ishiro was playing the instrument for all the kids. So this is a center point of the village, which becomes even more important uh, soon. So yeah, that's where Daniel sees Sato there in the Shinto temple, which I was, by the way, very surprised to see. I was very surprised to see him in there. But yeah, he's in there then getting his his gears ready, revving up for his uh, fight. And so yeah, at this point, it makes it even scarier than at that point. Yeah, and I know from playing sports for... My entire life. Yeah, you kind of, well, I don't usually fight to the death in anything, but I do know what it's like to get focused and you lock in and you visualize, and I'm sure this guy's doing that, and you almost play out whatever battle you're going to participate in. You try to play it out mentally before you actually physically do it. I find it incredibly valuable, and I'm sure someone of Sato's skill level and his experience in the martial arts. It's just going to get him locked and loaded. And yeah, I mean, honestly, I know that we both predict Miyagi could win. I would still have my doubts because someone as skilled as Sato is not someone you want to go up against in a fight to the death. In a match with points and okay, sure, but these are high stakes. And that was one cool thing the movie had going for it, I think, was the high stakes. It created some anxiety in me. We're all worried for Mr. Miyagi, and Sato looks unbeatable in many senses. So now Daniel walks away from Sato, and he stumbles into his very own tea ceremony with Kimiko. And Sal, this is such a great scene. And it was just really touching, like so many others 
and this film. One of the things I really like about this movie is the romance factor, which I think is greater than the first one with uh, Daniel and Allie. Oh, yeah. There's such a, a romantic air about this film, both with Miyagi and Yukie, but now with Daniel and Kumiko. I think that this scene here in the cannery with the Japanese tea ceremony rivals the clay sculpting scene in Ghost as far as cinematic romantic moments that just make you nearly cry. So there's Kumiko inside with the tea ceremony all set up. Daniel enters, kneels at the table. He tries to crack a joke. Is this seat taken? Kumiko is is disappointed at the attempt. I don't know. Is she disappointed that the joke was so bad or that he cracked a joke in general? But she looks very disappointed at his attempt at a joke. Daniel apologizes. The tea ceremony continues. Now, here's one thing I definitely learned when I visited Japan. And this is why I love Japan so much. One of the reasons is because everything has a purpose and a point and everything Mm -hmm. is specific and deliberate and has a meaning. There's no haphazardness there going on. Each movement in this tea ceremony by Kumiko is specific and deliberate. Daniel drinks the tea prepared by Kumiko. She removes the stick that holds up her hair. They both lean in. Oh, I'm loving this scene so much. They both lean in. And then again, not chosen this time. Candle blows out. Boom, storm. They both got to rush out of there. So it's almost a cock block, but instead of chosen, this time it's a storm, right as they're having their first real romantic kiss coming out of a fantastically beautiful scene. It was a beautiful scene, as we've both attested to. And this movie, and you spoke to it, so I have to chime in, it did get the romance right. And really adult themes. It really did. And that's where the movie succeeds, as well as the high stakes. And in this movie, wow, Miyagi can be hurt emotionally and he could die. And so that's where this movie succeeds. And in all the wonderful romance and falling in love and courtship, if you will, which the first movie had, it, had, it just it was different. You know, it was new kid, rich girl. Are they going to work? Is it going to mix? It worked for what it needed to be. But that's where this movie succeeds. And if it had gotten some of the other things right or smoothed out some of the things, and maybe there's just scenes that were omitted. So to me, it feels like they're bigger gaffes. You know, in my opinion, it could be even higher rated. But this is one of those great scenes. I think it's a bit of an homage to 16 Candles, when Jake Ryan kisses Samantha over the birthday cake and the candles at the very end of the movie, I'm thinking of that moment. And then you're right. And not one second in, maybe two seconds. And then here comes the storm. And the storm is like, it's not even sprinkling. It's already on a full blown storm, like ridiculous. Hide the kids, take cover. We've got a monsoon or a hurricane on our hands. Well, Fumiko and Daniel run out of the cannery, run toward the village. Yeah, it's almost like they were not in the loop because by the time they run back to the village and that little girl is up on the bell tower ringing the warning bell, everyone else is already (laughs) piling into the shelter, bringing luggage, bringing some prized possessions. How come Daniel and Fumiko were out of the loop this whole time? But they obviously were. So they kind of arrive late in the game. The bell's going off. The storm's coming. People are running into the shelter. We see Miyagi and Yukie running into the shelter. So that little girl's up there on the post uh, ringing the warning bell. 
And uh, Daniel and Kumiko run into Miyagi and Yukie. They all go into the shelter. They look outside, see a woman carrying a baby. Now, that kid, look at this scene again. That kid is fantastic because they really seem to be doing all the special effects as far as the practical effects with the wind and the rain. But they look outside, see this woman carrying the baby. They go back out to help. And as they do, they see the Shinto temple crumble. Mm-hmm. And remember, that's where we saw Sato. So for all we know, Sato is under the rubble of that Shinto church or temple, rather. Exactly. So now Sato is stuck. And when we say storm's coming, is it a hurricane or a monsoon or whatever it is? It's high wind and rain and destructive. You know, hurricane, up, or, hurricane or monsoon. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, one of the two. And growing up in Oklahoma, we dealt with tornadoes. Oh. And I dealt with one in, in particular that was uh, quite scary. I mean, it killed neighbors. It wow. hit our property. We were very lucky to live. And that's a story for another day, but it's quite a tale. It was an F5 on our property. And it was terrifying. But it came out of nowhere. It just wasn't there, and then bam, it was destructive. Little tornadoes are coming off the big tornado. So I understand how something can just happen. Wait, wait, how much time are you talking here? How much warning do you get? Man, that thing was on us maybe 20 seconds, 30 seconds. Okay, yeah, Yeah, that's no was The night it happened... It was eerie. It's a certain time of year where you know, the warmer weather and the cool weather kind of mix. It's always in April and May. And the skies just looked really creepy that night. So maybe our warning was something feels off. Our neighbor had horses and they were acting funny about something. Oh, they yeah. get a real sense of weather. So but that was on us very quickly. And thank God it just didn't hit us head on. It well, probably would have killed us. But... I could see how something happened so fast, not ever being in a hurricane or a monsoon, but it's very destructive. As you can see, you bring high winds into play and it just takes things down. I mean, what do I know? You know, I grew up in Los Angeles. I know nothing about any of these things, but did you have like a basement that you go into or something? No, at this point in time, we did have basements when I lived in Tulsa, but we had left Tulsa for about six years and moved to outside of the city more into the country and had 10 acres and my parents built a house. And so we had left the bigger city, bigger city, relatively speaking. But there are no basements in this house that we built. And only one of our neighbors had a storm cellar. So no, we did not. We took refuge in the bathroom, a centralized room in our house, and just covered up and literally prayed. And it lasted about a minute and a half after we made it, and other people did as well. Everyone got storm cellars. So for any time it sprinkled after that, my sister and I took refuge in the storm cellar. Meanwhile, we never had another tornado incident, but it just takes one to forever scar you for years to come. So, you know, I totally get it. I totally get that, bam, it's on them. But this is a different type of storm. I mean, tornado is one thing. It can plop down and it moves in such an unpredictable path. It just jumps up, it skips a house, it goes five over. So this is a monsoon. I'm assuming these are super heavy winds and it's powerful enough to knock over buildings and really flatten a village. I mean, tornadoes flatten, you know, cities. So anyway, so Sato is underneath the rubble. And so Sal, what happens? Because as strong and as tough as he is, he cannot get out on his own. 
So Daniel and Miyagi rush toward the temple as chosen, as headed the opposite way. I think Miyagi says, where is your uncle? And he says, his uncle is dead. So we're going, oh my gosh. So Sato is dead. Daniel and Miyagi look toward the temple. They see Sato. All of a sudden, this gust of wind comes and, and releases some debris. They see Sato. And they rush over there. Sato is on his back under a beam of wood. I love this this moment because Sato's laying there under this beam of wood. And he says, Miyagi, now you come to fight, coward. He thinks Miyagi's coming to kick his ass. But instead, Miyagi's coming to rescue him along with Daniel. Miyagi breaks the beam that's laying over Sato's chest. He frees him with a karate yeah. chop. Kind of like the wood that Sato was hitting at his house. Yeah, very similar and reminiscent of that wood, for sure. They all three run back to the shelter. Daniel looks back, sees the girl stuck up in the bell tower, and he orders them back as he heads over to help. Miyagi and Sato go into the shelter. They see Chosen. Chosen says, Uncle, I thought you were dead. Sato orders Chosen to go outside and help Daniel save the girl. Chosen says he cannot, and he heads deeper into the shelter. So we know that's a crucial moment there between Sato and Chosen. Absolutely. And just to speak on this scene, because we haven't really talked about it from a filmmaking standpoint, but this is a really great scene. I mean, it's terrifying. There's pieces moving. It's high winds. I mean, this is like the most elaborate sequence in in any of the Karate Kid movies. Well, you talk about the stakes, and and I I actually hadn't thought about that. But yeah, you raise the stakes. This is definitely life or death, which the original movie did not really visit. This is life or death scenario happening right here. And it's just a great action sequence. You know, you have debris blowing and you can kind of see Sato. And it was not an easy thing to shoot. So I, I give them credit. And I'd, I'd love to see some behind the scenes footage of, of just the making of this sequence because uh, it was really impressive to me. Assuming it was all done with practical effects, you had the wind machines did they actually film it at night? Maybe they filmed that inside of a studio. I mean, who knows? Maybe it wasn't all exteriors. I would be interested to see how they did that. I have not heard of any behind the scenes of Karate Kid 2, let alone that particular scene. But yeah, I think that would be interesting to see how that was actually done, see the big fans working, and see the, the Rainmakers working. That would be interesting. I'll have to get us the Karate Kid 2 DVD, like I got us oh. the original film on DVD, which had all these cool special features. So there still is a place for DVDs in this world because you get content that is not online, like special features. And and maybe it's on YouTube sometimes, but then the quality is suspect. So we'll have to look into that. I realized that a few years ago when I was streaming content from YouTube, or rather from uh, Netflix. And I was saying, wait a second, this movie doesn't have the behind the scenes like the DVD has. You're, you're missing so much content if, you're, if we're only doing streaming, streaming exclusively. Yeah. We're missing all kinds of cool content, director's commentary, special features. So I definitely yeah. do appreciate DVDs for that. You make a good point because the commentaries on films are kind of forgotten about, much like the special features, but in particular, the commentaries. And I wish that some service like Audible or even Netflix had that as an option. You want to do the commentary? Just click here. It would cost hardly anything, a very small amount of bandwidth. I don't even have to see the movie. I just want to listen to the audio. So that is a good point. That's why DVDs will still have a place and Blu-rays for years to come or until you can stream everything. So anyway, 
so you're right. Chosen has shown his true colors. He's a bully when he's got his crew, but when asked to put his own life on the line, he cowers away and hides in shame. So Daniel is left on his own and gets the girl, comes down. She's too big for him to carry her. So Sato, who had just been saved by Daniel and Mr. Miyagi, comes out of the shelter and carries the girl, gives Daniel a look or a smile, and they both, you know, struggle back in and take shelter. Well, Sato availed himself to go out there because at first Miyagi was going to go out there. Right. But then right. you remember Sato says, Miyagi, let me go. So he offered himself to go. So he went out there to help complete the task. And yeah, Daniel did some, remember that, that maneuver with the belt? So Daniel's up there on the bell tower with this little girl. There's like some sparks coming off the wire yeah. that's hitting, hitting the bell. And then he took off his belt and like hit the wire to get the wire down. So he totally saved this little girl's life. She would have been electrocuted. And then it was great to see Sato who, he wasn't injured. He was just stuck. So he still had the strength and the wherewithal to come out and help carry the, the little girl and, and help Daniel in. And that was a nice moment. But meanwhile, Chosen is, is stewing. But you kind of know now things are different, right? It feels like triumphant, if you will. I no longer felt like there was going to be a fight to the death. And sure enough, the next day, which is a beautiful, clear day, you know, sunny and... Sato shows up, and what happens, Sal? Sato arrives in the Cadillac, and he's in these work clothes. Like, we would never, we've only seen him in these expensive suits. He comes in these, like, work clothes, like he's working with FEMA. He goes, I come help rebuild. And he gives, here's the deed to the village. He gives the deed to the village to Miyagi, and he says to mm -hmm. Miyagi, forgive me, I beg you. So he really uh, humbles himself before Miyagi, because the night before was a real turning point, a huge turning point for everybody and the characters and the village itself. Miyagi pats him on the shoulder. There's nothing to forgive. And Daniel asks Sato if they can have the bond dance or the a bond dance at the castle. Sato agrees. So not yep. only does the deed get given back to the people of the village, but they get to have their celebration and the bond dance at the castle where it belongs, where it should be. I totally agree. It does belong there. It's wonderful to see Sato come to his senses and, and just for the first time, be more like a human being in touch with his feelings and his friendship. My only complaint would be that it just happened so fast. You know, it was 180, but I know it was a big traumatic thing the night before, but I'm just shocked that he couldn't see the kindness and goodness in Miyagi to come around sooner. But hey, nonetheless, he's here. It's wonderful to see. And all is well in the village. Hang on, though, because you bring up a very good point. Like, I personally don't necessarily believe people can do these 180-degree turns, let alone no. overnight. But I bring up, from a cinephile perspective, I bring up A Christmas Carol, one of my favorite Christmas tales. Mm -hmm. Ebenezer Scrooge did a 180 in one night. It was one night that he does a 180. So if Ebenezer but Scrooge three, could do a 180... But he had three acts. Okay, but he was given truth serum. He was given a, a kick in the, in the rear. And that's what Sato had. Sato saw, he saw yeah. the truth behind Chosen. He saw the truth behind Miyagi and Daniel. So he was able to see the truth, 
he had a lesson and he was able to do a 180 degree turn in one night. Now, does that happen in real life? I don't know. Does it happen in movies? Obviously it does. Yeah. Well, he was just so angry. You know, had he not been over the top, we never even saw another side to Sato. It's Ugh. not like it, it. It's not like it started at one and it grew to this ten. No, he was always like ready to kill, and then it's a total change. So I think some of that, you know, it was just a little bit. He didn't even feel like a real person, and all of a sudden here he is. He's a human being, and he's he's got emotion and he cares about his city. So I kind of dismissed him as this thug. It's one of those things where a popular cinema device is to allow the audience to sympathize with the villain. That's a popular, right. I think, thing device happening. Back in the 80s, I don't think we sympathized with the villains yet. No, that didn't yet. come about till, till later. So the villains are kind of one-dimensional until they're either killed or have their change of heart as Ebenezer Scrooge or Sato. Yeah. So I think that these characters were unfortunately a little bit ahead of their time where we didn't really get to see, well, Ebenezer Scrooge, we did get to see some of his youth. Yeah, but you know what? Now that you mention it, so we could have seen another side of Sato. Yeah. So that his turn becomes a little more believable. Flashbacks could have helped because anything to show me that he was a good person rather than just hearing about how they trained together and they were friends, I needed to see it. But I was thinking about what movie have I seen that happen in? And interesting enough is the Rocky franchise. Apollo Creed started as the villain, right? Yeah. And through the movies, he became friends with Rocky. He trained him in Rocky Three. He eventually dies. Spoiler alert. He dies in Rocky Four. And so that was an interesting way to take the villain and bring him in as one of the heroes. That was an interesting thing. This is just done at a breakneck speed with Sato. And something's just missing. You know, if it's timing, if it's some scenes that were cut for whatever reason, maybe they never shot him. Maybe it, the script is more flushed out. And, hey, we can't do that. We've got these special effects in this movie. We've got a lot going on. We'll have to focus on these things. And I think there's this, it's something a little false here and there in this movie. That's all. I'm happy to see him at this point. Yeah, it's awesome that him and Miyagi can shake hands again and the village is saved. And yeah, of course, it's wonderful. So all that to say, it leads up to the village is going to have their huge celebration. And it looks fantastic, Sal. It's well orchestrated. It's super colorful with these costumes and music and dancing. And of course, you have Kimiko there and she takes center stage. And what does she do? She's getting ready to do a solo fan dance and she's a little nervous. Daniel yep. gives her encouragement. And by the way, Daniel is in a sweet a sweet red robe. Where did this come from? We've never seen this before. This is not a part of the Miyagi family tradition. Is this sweet red robe that, that like any self-respecting pimp would wear? This is, uh, who's the Playboy guy? Hugh Hefner. Yeah, this is Hugh Hefner style robe. Where did this it's come from? Awesome. Did Kamiko also make this? Because she's amazing. That would have been funny if she, she made the 50s dance clothes and this robe by hand. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I'd like to have one. And maybe there's a figure that you can get with Daniel wearing this. 
You know what? That would be an interesting thing because the toy makers have explored the Karate Kid universe, namely the original movie, Karate Kid. They have not really explored Karate Kid 2. Yeah, if they made a, a Daniel LaRusso action figure with this red robe, I am buying it. I'd also like to get Daniel in the blue tux with the car all dented up. <laughs> <laughs> what if you act, what if a Daniel LaRusso blue tux action figure actually came with the the uh 1948 uh, super deluxe? That'd that be would be awesome. totally cool. Oh, with, oh, with, a break off, with a break off bumper. Just yeah. uh yeah. <laughs> That's that'd be great. So Kamiko's preparing for kind of this is like the big number. Everything is kind of leading to this moment in the film. Everyone's watching her, all eyes on her. So what happens now? Well, there she is. Kumiko looking fantastic and beautiful, beginning her solo dance. Starts the dance, opens up a fan, as is the tradition. Very soon, we see Chosen sliding in behind Kumiko on an overhead wire, sliding in on this thing. And like ziplining in. Yes, exactly, exactly. He puts a butterfly knife, and it's definitely a butterfly knife because I used to have one myself. Puts a butterfly knife to Kumiko's neck threatening her life. He challenges Daniel. Miyagi tells Daniel, it's not a tournament. It's for real. He's letting him know. There's no points here. There's no referee here. Daniel walks over. Chosen says no bridge. So Daniel kicks away the bamboo bridge. Chosen throws away the knife and throws away Kumiko. And now it's Daniel and Chosen facing off. So Kumiko was doing her dance on the stage, but there's kind of like this huge moat around it, if you will. Yeah. It's a big drop off and there's a little bitty bridge and everyone's sitting, you know, in like auditorium type seating, but natural, like stone or whatever this cave is made of. And watching her, so when he comes zip lying in, Daniel came over the bridge, he makes him throw the bridge. So now it's just the three of them really in here and no one can save them. I yeah. mean, no one can make the jump. There's probably another bridge somewhere, but they're all just watching and banking on Daniel, which it does make me think that they, they did all just assume Daniel could fight him and Kamiko's life's at danger. I'm surprised that someone else didn't have like a backup plan. I know that when Kumiko was just laying there after having been hit by Chosen, she was laying there for a while. I, I really wanted somebody in the crowd to say, hey, 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 let us grab her. Let us take her. And then yeah. you guys go about, you know, you guys go about your fight. Because she was laying there for a while. How she could have been dead for all they know. So does no one have like blow darts or something that could reach Chosen? Like everyone's just sitting there like, okay, let's go Daniel. I mean, theoretically, Daniel could die and Kamiko could die. Yeah. I mean, or start throwing stuff. Yeah, our staffs or someone's yeah. got a bow and arrow. It's like no one went into like a backup mode. I mean, maybe there was. Maybe there was some sort of sniper at the top and Miyagi would just nod to him or Sato. I mean, Sato it works for the military. But did it, Sato have only those three thugs? And when they're gone, he has no replacements? Because if he did have some backup thugs, then he could have sicked them on Chosen. You yeah. know, so what, what the hell happened with that? He only had his three guys and that was it. I mean, he's trained U.S. military for 40 years. He's got enough GIs on his payroll, but it caught him by surprise. They were at a celebration. Anyway, that's just me being nitpicky, but I just he think the stakes him. are high, you know? No, he, he did warn him. He said, Chosen, don't do this. And then Miyagi said, uh, don't dishonor your uncle here. 
I'm trying to do my Japanese accents, by the way. Oh, it's good. It's good, yeah. But the fight is on. And this isn't all Valley. And Chosen does the unthinkable, Sal. He does the unthinkable, and he counters the crane technique, the infamous crane kick, of which Miyagi said, what, Sal? If done correct, no can defense. But yet, Chosen did. And maybe it wasn't as good a form, but nonetheless, there it was. He defended it. And how did he defend it, Sal? Do you remember? Okay, so this is, gets into what I mentioned earlier. So you look at the lineage. You had Mr. Miyagi's dad teaching his son, Mr. Miyagi, and Sato. Then the lineage goes down Miyagi's side to Daniel, and it goes down Sato's side to Chosen. Theoretically, Chosen should know all the moves Daniel knows, right? It should stand to reason based on the lineage of the master disciple. I would assume when Mr. Miyagi fled that Miyagi's father was no longer Sato's active teacher, sensei, master. That'd just be my assumption, that a father wouldn't continue to train someone after all of that bad blood had spilt. And I would then assume Sato probably sought out another master or sensei or developed his own style based on everything he'd already known. And so maybe new techniques happened, kind of the crease way took place. That's just my assumption. The reason why I would disagree with that is because Sato was there at Mr. Miyagi's dad's deathbed. And then he was, he was there in the village. I think that Sato has been a part of Mr. Miyagi's dad's life all these years in one way or another, maintaining some sort of closeness with him. I don't think he turned his back on him. I just think they maybe stopped training together. Not out of hatred, but almost out of respect. Maybe Miyagi's father's like, I'm no longer doing that anymore. I could see that. And Sato's like, great, you know, I understand. I'll go over here now. I'll fight these tournaments or I'll start my own dojo. He must have immediately got into it. And he's working with GIs on his own and kind of, you know, how you learn everything you can from your parents and then you go on and become your own person. I could see how Sato did that. So in other words, you don't think that Chosen should know the moves of Daniel LaRusso just because you go to their upline lineage, find the same teacher. Well, I think they would know a lot of the similar things, right? Because they have the core of training initially. But I think at some point it could just change. So yes, I think Daniel is a lot less skilled. Let's be honest. He's not even been in class, but what, one year with Mr. Miyagi? How many months yeah. is it? Six months, beginning of this movie, and what was it, like three before that? So he's not even been training martial arts for a year. So he's a far less experienced than someone like Chosen. I was just saying Sato probably then started to bring in different aspects, more aggressive training. He was training with all these military people, and that's all I was saying. It was probably more robust I think Daniel and Chosen probably do know a few things the same. And Chosen's obviously seen the crane kick and someone who's a little bit slower and probably not good at disguising it or, you know, I don't know, but he just seen it a lot, which, you know, Miyagi's line about there's no defense for it ever. Eh, if you always seen it, like I said in earlier podcasts, you don't have to go into it. You could just wait it out. But uh, anyway, it was interesting to see that 
that's Daniel's go-to, and Chosen had no problem with it at all. No, 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 no. So Daniel is definitely a better fighter now, but he's never faced someone this skilled. And I do think he's hanging in there. He's definitely getting some shots here and there, but he's being outmatched, and it's not looking good, Sal. Well, one thing I realized, and I, I didn't realize this until the last time I watched the movie, Daniel's wearing jeans. So how difficult do you think it would be to get some major kicks in wearing jeans versus your opponent who may be wearing something that allows you a little more mobility? Oh, you make a good point. Maybe it was the jeans. It was the denim that slowed the crane kick down just enough for Chosen to get a hold of it. Yeah, not my preferred choice. I've never gone to class and tried to do all of our kicks with jeans on. I much prefer a gi that is looser. So yeah, not ideal for Daniel. Didn't help him. But even beside that, I mean, this is a fight to the death. And he just doesn't have as much to draw on as chosen. But things begin to change. The, the essence of Miyagi Karate begins to unfold. And what starts to happen? All of a sudden, and I say all of a sudden because I don't think anybody was expecting this, Miyagi starts on the Denden Daiko Handrum. Then everyone starts on their own, and you have a whole arena in this castle ruins, a whole arena of people doing their twisting Denden Daiko drum. So Daniel then whips into the drum technique as taught by Miyagi Karate. It's an interesting sequence in the way that it's filmed because you don't normally see fight sequences filmed this close up. You see about a quarter shot of Daniel from the waist up, and then you see yep. over the shoulder of Chosen, and then you see Daniel initiating the drum technique, which is the side-to-side, -side, torque, side-to-side, side-to-side, and you see him besting Chosen using the Dendendaiko drum technique. And this goes back to what I said before. Why doesn't Chosen know this also? So somewhere along Sato's teaching lost the origins of Miyagi Karate, which is the drum technique. Yeah, he probably omitted that. Or who knows? Or maybe he caught him by surprise. So now Daniel does a series of hits and it is a super tight camera. And it kind of looks like to me that his hands are, he has them clasped together and he's doing a double-handed hit. But it's so tight, you just can't tell. So whatever it is, he does a series of hits to the right, hits with the left, hits with the right, hits with the left. And Chosen is reeling and just kind of succumbs to it, which leads us to this big finale. So he delivers the drum technique. He conceivably has won the battle. He goes over to Chosen, grabs him by the hair, by the back of the head, and he says, live or die, man. I think he says man, right? Live or die, man. I think he does. Yeah. And Chosen says, die. And then Daniel says, wrong, and gives him a honk on his nose, just like Miyagi did to Kreese outside of the All-Valley Tournament. My gosh. Another honk. Wait, you don't like the honk, do you? I didn't mind this one as much as the first one, but uh, it's fitting. It bookends the movie, the two big intense scenes. I mean, I guess that 
Well, that first fight sequence was supposed to be more intense with Kreese and Miyagi, but it wasn't. But no, I didn't mind this one as much because obviously Daniel's not going to kill Chosen. And he'd already won. And Chosen's life is, well, he's going to live without honor. So, hey, Daniel's won. Karate Kid won. Karate Kid 2. He's the winner. Just like the first film, Daniel gets the girl. Yeah. So two films in a row, Daniel gets the victory and gets the girl. And just like the first film, the ending is quite similar, isn't it? We have Miyagi looking on at his student's victory and smiling, and that's the end. The only difference is in the original, it was a still shot, mm-hmm. and then we, you know, we're on Miyagi. And this one, it's live action. Yeah. <laughs> Miyagi, and that's the only difference. But I loved it. I did. It's a great send-off. And that's it. Karate Kid Part 2. I loved it. I really did. It's a really good film. I enjoy it. I think it is so much stronger than the other two Karate Kids that have Mr. Miyagi in them. And uh, yeah, like I said, a lot of adult storylines, incredible scenes with romance, high stakes, and it's a really good film. And yes, it could have been even stronger. But it holds up, and it's nice to go back. I mean, we've lost Pat Morita many years ago, and his legacy and Mr. Miyagi's legacy lives on in this movie. I mean, had this not been part of the Karate Kid franchise, it would be very sad. You know, there's a lot that comes from this movie. I would definitely say Miyagi lives on. He lives on in in all of the sequels. And he oh, lives yeah. on in Cobra Kai. Uh, Miyagi is, will always live. And that's why I really foresee sometime in the future, we see a world, a Karate Kid universe that goes backward. And we begin to see Miyagi as a child. And of course, you would probably see Sato as a child. You get to see his father. Maybe you get to see Miyagi's mother. So I think that there is a wonderful opportunity here, considering what has occurred recently with Cobra Kai, a wonderful opportunity to revisit the Karate Kid universe Way back when. Yeah, I totally agree. I've spent Pat Morita's gone, but yeah, Miyagi's character will live forever. And they've already had that one scene in Cobra Kai, which leads me to believe maybe it's them and maybe it's someone else. He's just such a great character that you could do more with him. You could recast it and you could do Miyagi the early years. He is endless to do things with. So I like that idea for sure. And at some point in time, we might have to watch this Karate Kid cartoon to see what they did. That's the one thing (laughs) I'm unfamiliar with. No, I haven't seen that either. So, yeah. I mean, what we do know about the third movie is that, unfortunately, Yukie and Kamiko are not in it. Spoiler. I know. Well, you've had enough time. The audience has had enough time to see Karate Kid 3. I think there's an expiration on spoilers. Is there but, like, like, hey, man, I, I want to see Gone with the Wind, but I don't want any spoilers before I see <laughs> yeah, it. I don't, I don't need spoilers. So, yeah, you know, that's unfortunate. I, I would love to have seen Yukie and Miyagi, you know, come back to the U.S. Well, because Karate Kid 3 opens with them coming back, coming back from Okinawa at the airport, right? Empty handed. Absolutely. Yeah. Why aren't there ladies with them? Yeah, well. We will answer these questions and explore many more things on the Karate Kid Part 3 special episode. Miyagi! I don't think Sato's in it, but (laughs) 
So thank you so much for listening, and we greatly appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcast. And you can also follow us on social media at Let's Talk Cobra Kai, and please message us if you have any comments or questions. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter of the show, just search for Let's Talk Cobra Kai. And if you're curious about our other shows, please visit JustCuriousMedia.com. Thanks so much. No mercy.